E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Washington State as a wine region is incredibly unique in part because of ancient geography. The Midwest was once a massive, shallow waterway, heavily populated with algaes, sea life, ancient birds, and water dinosaurs. It was also the home of the giant clam, the world's largest bivalve, that grew to such size because it needed bigger gills to survive in the muddy banks of this western interior seaway. When tectonic plate movement caused changes on the western edges of the seaway, the waterway broke out from the Rocky Mountains and partially drained into the Pacific Ocean through what is modern-day Washington State. In this great ancient flood, seawaters broke off huge chunks of the Rockies and deposited them along their course. They also carried boulders and smaller trace minerals that blanketed Washington State. Predecessors of the horse roamed wild in this region, and when the floods came, the pre-horses ran to a higher ground to survive. Horse Heaven Hills AVA is a major hotbed for paleontologists studying fossils of the ancient horse. The unique hodgepodge geology, coupled with the strata of many synclines, yields some of the most interesting soil chemistry in the world. Though long gone, the western interior seaway still leaves its imprints upon our wines. Washington State's wine industry really got its start back in the 1860s. But in a story familiar in many states, things wound down pretty fast with prohibition. Washington State was pretty gung-ho about prohibition and was one of the first states to jump on the temperance bandwagon. The budding wine industry ended before it really got started. But in the last two decades, things have really exploded. 20 years ago, there were less than 100 wineries. Today, there are over 850. Perhaps we can thank learning institutions, for Washington owes much of its wine prowess to Walter Clora of Washington State University, who helped promote Washington State wine through university agricultural programs. In fact, if you look at the big wine-producing states in the U.S., you'll see that universities helped spur things along in many wine states. UC Davis in California, Virginia Tech in Virginia, Cornell University in New York. Bringing wine into a learning institution 
creates time and effort for people to look into details that a random winery owner might not investigate, especially a winery owner in the pre-internet era, before you can just look up almost anything at your fingertips. In these pre-internet days, universities were invaluable at pushing the wine industry in certain states. Universities had the time and the resources to look at long-term effects such as larger climate patterns, geology, and potential for future grape varieties. Most of Washington State's wine-growing regions are east of the Cascade Mountain Range. A small amount of production happens in western Washington, and these wines differ greatly from eastern Washington production in terms of grape variety and style. In the west, for the most part, along the coast, things are wet and cold, so grapes that can grow in such a climate excel. Expect whites and light reds that are high in acid and bright. In the east, things are warmer. The climate in terms of wetness is borderline desert because those Cascade Mountains block the coastal precipitation. But here in the east, deep winter freezes can do serious vineyard damage. And it's really messed up a couple of vintages. You'll find lots of Cabernet-based wines in Bordeaux-style wines and bulk Merlot wine. But Syrah is shining through as the high-quality gem. Small boutique wineries are investing heavily in Syrah, and some producers are making some truly ethereal Syrahs. Because Washington State is such a blossoming wine scene, you'll find some extremely exciting wines from young vineyards with loads of potential. And you'll also find some engaging and complex wines from older vineyards, like Red Willow. Keep listening to hear how one couple is making high-quality wines in eastern Washington. Sustainability has never been more important, and DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological cork closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM, combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees, DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm closures dot com forward slash i d t t that's d i a m dash closures with an s dot com forward slash i d t t for more information
Greg Harrington of Gramercy Cellars on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Fantastic. Really nice to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Where did you grow up originally? I grew up kind of the suburban existence uh, on Long Island. So I grew up in Smithtown and pretty much stayed there until I was 18 and, and went to college. Loved every minute of it. You know, unfortunately, I don't have family there anymore, but um, you know, I, I try to get back as, as much as I can. You know, Long Island for me, is it, it's really a place that's in my heart and it's kind of why we named our winery Gramercy after something in New York. And uh, so it's still, you know, Long Island is still my identity, even though my wife makes fun of me from being from Long Island as much as she can. What were you like as a kid? Everyone said, well, you must grow up in a real big food and wine family. And absolutely not. You know, dad drank beer, mom drank jug wine or, or boxed wine, and probably the same one for about two years. Like, you know, drink it for Easter, drink it for Christmas, drink it for Easter again. And, you know, we didn't really grow up with a lot of alcohol. Even my dad didn't drink a lot. And the food we ate, you know, it was kind of this like, my mom's a great cook, but she made really simple, really 70s kind of food, you know, chicken parmesan and meatloaf and... You know, even today when I go see my mom, she lives in Texas now, I ask her to make meatloaf and I know it only has four ingredients and I still, I can't make it like she can. So, you know, it just, it was a, it was a basic, just really kind of cool upbringing. You know, it was the kind of place where, you know, in the summer you get on your bike and mom went be back at five and it was seven o'clock in the morning and, you know, there was no cell phones or anything. They just, you just went and no one was worried and, and, uh, it was an amazing place to grow up. What was your dad like? My dad worked a lot. He was in the military for about 20 years um, in the army and then retired from there and then did uh, defense contracting. And he was always really busy, but really loving and, and really caring. Um, he just wasn't, he wasn't ar around a lot. So uh, a lot of the upbringing was, it was really kind of pushed off to my mom. And, you know, it was my mom who would come to all my sports games and, and I was a lacrosse fanatic. Long Island, you know, you get your first lacrosse stick when you're three and a half and then you go from there. Uh, so she, you know, she was always at my games and, and uh, you were an athletic guy. Yeah. It was, you know, there was a point where uh, I thought I was actually going to go to college on a lacrosse scholarship. And then I found the restaurant business and then that ended the, uh, ended my lacrosse days. But did you ever think to kind of follow in your dad's footsteps? I mean, was that ever appealing to you? The, like the military life? Yeah. I was pretty much being groomed to go to West Point, which people who know me now are like, what? You're going to go to West Point? You know, I thought it'd be an amazing career. But then again, then I got into restaurant business and then pretty much everything changed. You know, my first jobs in the restaurant were in, in the back of the house as a dishwasher, like a lot of people. You know, I was 14 years old. It was in this, you know, the typical Long Island Italian family, checkered tablecloth kind of place. And my best friend who was a year older than me, he just went off. He was, he actually, he was 16. I was 14. He went and got a job as a dishwasher. And I was like, what am I going to do all summer? So he's like, well, just tell him you're 16. So I went, all right. So I walked in, said I was 16, and they hired me. Obviously, they didn't check any ID. And I just loved it. I, you know, the order of it, you know, the order fire system of and how you're doing a specific task at a specific time and you're doing it over and over and over. You know, now I couldn't live life like that. I'm a different person now. But at the time, I really liked the, you know, let's do it as well as we can over and over and over and over. You ended up going to Cornell. Yeah. You know, totally unexpectedly. How so? I mean, what happened? Then? So my mom was a high school teacher and on Long Island, there was a school called St. Anthony's and St. Anthony's was about five minutes from my house and that's where I was going to go. But a year before, so when I was in eighth grade, the Long Island diocese decided to merge two high schools. They merged St. Anthony's and Holy Family into Holy Family in Huntington. And my mom was kind of, didn't want me to go through the turmoil of a school merger. So she said, well, I think you should go to Chaminade out in Mineola which involved me basically taking the train out to high school every day. 
And it was about an hour every day. I wasn't alone. There were actually about 30 kids that got on the train every single day from at various points. I was the only one from my town, but it was great. I had an hour every day to do homework. So when I got home, I had no homework. I did it all on train, but I was working. And the run up to this long story, I was working in an Italian restaurant and I didn't feel like going to work that night because I think I had a test the next day or something. And so I had to call my boss and, you know, at, at that time you actually had to go find a quarter and wait for seven kids to use the, the payphone. So it took like 20 minutes to actually get to the phone. Called in and said, hey, I'm not coming to work, which was not that big of a deal because I wasn't extra that night anyway. So I missed the first train coming out of the school. And so I went to sit in this classroom and I'm sitting in a classroom doing homework. I think it was calculus. I, I, I really liked math and science when I was in school. And a lady walked in. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, doing homework. And she's like, well, why don't you go home? And I'm like, oh, because I missed my train. And she's like, you take the train to school? And I said, yeah, I explained a story about the train. And then she said, why'd you miss your train? And I said, because I called off from work. And she said, oh, you work? And what do you do? And restaurants. And we got in this whole story of, you know, think, do you like restaurants? Fantastic. Just a random lady. Just random lady. I had no idea who she was. What homework are you doing? I'm doing calculus. Do you like it? Yeah, I do really well in it. And she just looked at me, she says, you need to sit here and listen to what I'm going to say. And I went, okay. You know, I don't don't even think I said, who are you? I was just like, okay, why not? And it turned out her name was Cheryl Farrell, and she was the admissions director for the hotel school at Cornell. And she had about a 45-minute presentation. And at the end, she said, I'd really like you to come up and interview at Cornell. And got accepted. And it was funny because that was, Cornell was my stretch, and I had two safety schools. I don't think I got into the safety schools. (laughs) They have a good lacrosse at Cornell at the time? They had amazing lacrosse. And actually, I, in high school, I played for the nephew of the lacrosse coach at Cornell at that time. The problem was that West Point, which was where I was destined to go, is obviously full scholarship. And Cornell is not. And there are no sports scholarships in the Ivies. So my mom and my dad were like, well, if you want to go to Cornell, you have to work. So every summer uh, when I was at school, my mom would say, okay, so you have to earn X amount of dollars because this is what we need to help cover the cost of Cornell. It was basically like, you can go there, but you really need to be responsible and you need to contribute to this education because we're just not in a position to afford 25000 a year or whatever it was at the time. So that pushed you more into restaurants because you had to work. Yeah, I, I, I had no choice. Yeah, and even for food money and, and drinking money, you know, there was, you know, I, I couldn't call home and say, hey, mom, I need a hundred bucks. You know, I remember there was one ATM and it was like a mile away from campus that you could get $5 out as opposed to like the minimum of 10. So I would like walk all the way to the mile just to get the $5 ATM as opposed to the $10 ATM. So I didn't work in any major restaurant jobs in college. It was just basically the the easy, you know, work in a pizzeria or work in the dining hall. And it wasn't really about becoming a, a culinary artist or a great restaurateur is basically just about, you know, making eight or ten dollars an hour to, to help pay tuition and, and to live. At that time, what were you thinking was yeah. gonna happen? So I knew I had a love of restaurants. And Cornell at the time, the hotel school has, has now kind of turned into a finance and real estate school. But at the time, in uh, 88 to 92 when I was there, it was really um, there were a lot of operational people there. There were a lot of people who wanted to be hotel operators and and food and beverage professionals and, and no one in wine at the time. But there are a lot of people who want to be chefs or front of house operators. And uh, I was really kind of attracted to opening restaurants and designing restaurants. So I went to my advisor and say, look, I, I kind of want to create a major in, in restaurant design and entrepreneurship. So kind of take half classes in design and half classes in, in business and food and beverage. And they were willing to set that up for me. 
So there was a, a firm called Cine Little. They did major restaurant design at the time, not like a Philippe Stark front of the house, but they did back of the house. You know, we're going to do a university kitchen and we're going to do a bank of, you know, 37 stoves and we're going to feed 100,000 people a night kind of things. And that's where I wanted to start to try to get into a better, uh, eventually work into doing design for more high-end restaurant groups. And Cine Little hired two people every year at Cornell and they had done it for like 20 years, except in 1992. Because 1992, there was a severe recession. And I don't know the exact percentage, but a large percentage of my graduating class left without a job. And Cindy Little said to me, hey, why don't you come back in 93? We'll interview you. Go get a year of operational experience. And I went, great. So applied for a, an Italian restaurant group based out of New York City. And they said, hey, we're about to open a, a, a restaurant in Southampton. Come work with us there. And I said, great. Where do I live? And they were like, we don't know. And I said, well, I'm not going to be working there. <laughs> so Because housing in the Hamptons. Yeah, during the summer. Yeah, th- there's no way making, you know, I think, you know, seven, eight dollars an hour. There's no way you can you can live there. So my family was out in Vegas. So I moved back to, just moved back to Vegas and um, got humbled really quick. Put in for a bunch of management jobs and Vegas at the time, there was almost no such thing as a restaurant in Vegas at the time. There was, again, like Long Island, there were small family restaurants, but the rest of Vegas was $6.99 all you can eat buffet and and chicken steak and lobster. Spago had just come in um, and they were really the first people to do high-end dining on, on a huge scale, casino style. And getting your first job on the Vegas Strip is almost impossible. It's kind of like New York City. How do you get your first New York City job until you work in New York City? And Vegas was the exact same way. So I actually took a job as a busboy or back waiter, whatever you want to call it. In um, you graduated from hotel school, but you're working as a busser. Yeah, um, I just you know I had to make a living, and I wanted to get a start. And it was, it was a restaurant called Andre's. It was it was actually a great restaurant. Andre Rocha, and he was doing very traditional, very formal service, and I had never seen Garrett on service before growing up on Long Island. And, you know, we didn't go, we, when we went into the city, uh, when I was a kid, we'd go to Chinese restaurants and, and, you know, places, my parents, my mom grew up in the Bronx and my dad grew up in Jackson Heights. So it was all local ethnic cuisine. And I'm in this French restaurant, I'm seeing Garrett on service and I would, every once in a while, I'd have to put a plate down with the cloche and I'd be like, man, I hope this is the lamb. I really hope this is the lamb. And I really hope this is position four because I have no idea. Um, and, it, and it was great training. And I had taken a wine class at Cornell but I had never really seen a 500 item wine list. And, you know, I knew what Chateau Latour was, but I didn't know what Chateau Pavé was or, or you know, I, I knew Jadot, but I didn't necessarily know Romani Conti or, or Jaillet. So it was kind of this opening. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, even though I was at the low rung, it felt really good. It was, hey, you know, I'm earning my way up to the business. And you were around adults. Yeah. And I was around, the family restaurant is, it's more small time. There's obviously very professional, but a lot of the family, you don't come to work every day and say, you know, we're going to do the best we're going to do. It's, it's, they're just, they're doing what they do and they're doing what they know. There might not be a knowledge base and experience base to run a very, very, very high-end establishment. And Andre's was really high-end, really established. And the people that were there wanted to be career food and beverage professionals. There were a lot of older men and women who were well into their 50s and 60s who had been doing, you know, fine dining French service for 30, 40 years. It was, it was the big time. I, I had a good time. Did that feel exotic to you? I mean, that, that was like a different world. You know, you, when you're at Cornell, you study restaurants like that. You know, you hear about the Quilted Giraffe and Andre Stoltner and, and things like that. But I had never done it. So, yeah, it was, it was, I was like, wow, I didn't know this existed. And 
that got me really curious to try to explore, hey, what is this real, what is the fine dining restaurant thing? And, and is there actually a career here for me? I mean, it must have been interesting in Vegas at that time. Yeah, because even in Vegas, again, it was, you know, a thousand people online to get six ninety nine prime rib, you know? And then one day out of the blue, without ever having said that he wanted to ever do this, my dad said, I want to open a restaurant. And I went, what? Do you think that he was trying to bond with you a little bit? He was like, well, we never really spend time. Greg's interested in, in restaurants. We could work together. Was that like his attempt to try to spend time with you? Yeah. You know, I, my brother and I have had this discussion. My brother's four years younger than me. And, and um, he, he got to spend a lot more time just because of family circumstances, got to spend a lot more time with my dad while I was in college and he was in high school. And uh, I think that that's exactly what it was. Um, but I also think that, that my dad is a very gregarious guy. You know, you can put him on the, on the street out here right now and in two minutes, he'll know 30 people out there and they'll be inviting him back to the bar and to their house. And I mean, he's, he is a very social kind of guy. And being at the time being 22 and out of Cornell, I was like, yes, I can run a restaurant. I'm ready to be an owner. So we set out to start our own restaurant in Vegas. Basically found a consultant to uh, help us open the restaurant and ended up opening about a 100-seat steakhouse. And uh, at the time, we really weren't sure what concept to go with. We knew we wanted a steakhouse. But I said to my dad, well, you know, I think the wine thing is going to get big. You know, I saw what Andre was doing over there. I see what Spago is doing and some of the casinos are now doing higher end wine lists. Let's try to do some wine. And he was all about it. So we actually set up a program with 100 wines by the glass. And Southern Wine and Spirits came in and our wine rep was a guy named Ron Mumford. And Ron and I kind of bonded right away. And, you know, because there weren't too many places that wanted to do 200 wines and 100 by the glass and, and just kind of get adventurous. And the more he and I talked, the more he realized that I was really into wine. And he said, hey, I'm studying for this exam called the Master Sommelier exam. I think you should study. And I said, I have no idea what that is, but it seems like you guys sit around and drink wine at 10 o'clock in the morning and try to guess what it is. And that sounds fun. So let's go. And ended up getting into his tasting group. And it was amazing because the tasting group was basically myself, Steve Geddes, Ron Mumford, and a couple other people. And in that group, four of us eventually passed the exam. It was an amazing training ground. And it was what was happening for wine in Vegas at that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were probably eight people into wine at the time in Vegas and six of them were in the room. So it was, yeah, it was, it was the scene in for Vegas wine at the time. And what was selling at that? I mean, what did a list look like back then? You know, it was pretty basic. You know, obviously, you know, half your list was, was California and then you would be doing classics of France and we liked Riesling. So, we, you know, we tended to do a pretty... Um, Five selections of Riesling at the time was probably big. You know, this was all pre-Lotus uh, and, and what they were doing with like 400 selections over there. But um, yeah, it was, it was pretty basic. You know, you'd have a Sancerre, you'd have, you know, seven or eight Burgundies, seven or eight Bordeaux, um, run, you know, running half of them by the glass. And But, you know, you got to think of what wine was in 1993 in Vegas. You know, people knew Chardonnay and Merlot, and that was it. You know, it was Sonoma Cotrera and Matanzas Creek. You know, those are your prestige bottles. And every once in a while, someone would know, you know, something like Pichon Baron or Pichon Lalande. And, uh, you know, that would be your big player for the night. And, but it was, it was not an advanced wine market at all. Nothing like it is right now. I feel like you kind of got an entree at a young age there that you may not have gotten if there were more people in the scene. Yeah. I, you know, at, at the time, you know, you say, what was a sommelier? You know, sommeliers weren't 22 and right out of school. And, and you know, sommeliers were, were 60, 65 and been working in the business for 40 years. So I never really, being a sommelier never even entered my mind. And 
with my dad's restaurant, you know, we were just kind of too inexperienced, too undercapitalized in a good spot, but at the wrong time. And we ended up pulling the plug pretty quickly. It was, it was, it was a great time. Um, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but we ended up closing that restaurant. And I kind of said, you know, what am I going to do next? And I said, I want to do this sommelier thing and I want to do it at a really high level. So I said, well, I either got to go to New York or I got to go to San Francisco. I figured those are my best chances to get a, get a sommelier job. And so I just basically put everything I owned in, in the, the world in my car, which was a Jeep Wrangler at the time. And this became a problem because I had a soft top. And um, having to haul uh, all my stuff into the hotel room every night became a huge issue. But I, I said, I'm going to throw everything in the world in a car. I had like a couple grand in my pocket. And I'm going to San Francisco and I'm going to get a job as a sommelier. Pretty directed and focused. I mean, were you that kind of kid? If you look at the major milestones, I've just kind of set my mind and said, um, probably pretty recklessly, I've gotten pretty lucky along the way. But I just said, hey, I'm just going to go do it. And I ended up making a detour down in LA with a friend of mine and a friend of mine's friend was down from San Francisco and we were talking and she said, hey, where are you going to live in San Francisco? And I said, I have no idea. She says, I need a roommate. And I'm like, how much is rent? It actually fit in my budget. Um, got to San Francisco like the next day, knocked on the door. I'm like, hope this girl was serious because all my stuff's in the car. <laughs> so like, let's go. And she was. And, uh, then just kind of started um, banging on doors. Went over to where Mike Bonacorsi was working at the time. Um, went over and talked to Jeremiah Tower over at Stars. What was that like? So I got interviewed for the Napa Stars, and I mean he was an, he's an amazing guy to talk to. I mean an absolute legend. You know, you look at people that came out of that line. You know, some of the some of the best chefs in San Francisco right now. And he he had the idea of, of that he thought that Napa was ready for fine dining, and I actually got an offer to be a manager up there and. At the same time, I also got a job to be manager at Square One, and it just made more sense to be in a city restaurant where I thought, you know, I, I could get into the sommelier scene as opposed to being up in wine country and having to commute an hour every day because I was definitely going to live in San Francisco. And working at Square One, Square One was amazing. It was ahead of its time, right, for Mediterranean. And- yeah, I mean, a lot of people credit Joyce for for really introducing Mediterranean food to to America, and Joyce was amazing to work for. I mean, her knowledge of food was just absolutely legendary. And she wrote several books, right? Yeah, she's she's got to be pushing, I don't know, 30, 40 now. It's, it's just an, an amazing amount of volume of, of work coming out of her mind. And I got to work with her every day. You know, she was at the restaurant every single day. And for me, the added benefit was Peter Granoff, who's a master sommelier, was working there as well. But it, it's funny because this happens to me every once in a while. And I, I have to, when this situation occurs, I have to think back to my first days of being enthused about meeting someone who was kind of an idol to me or, um, or, you know, very, very high up in the, or established in the wine business. So my first day I walk in and I was like, hi, Peter, my name is Greg Harrington. I'm a manager here now. And I want to be a master sommelier. And he kind of looked at me and he was like, that's great. Stay out of the wine cellar. Oh yeah. And I was like, oh, like, what do you mean? Like, like I'm here to learn everything that you're willing to teach me. Like, you know, if you know, Peter, Peter is kind of tongue in cheek and, and, and he probably didn't mean it, but being from New York, you know, I was like, well, he just said stay out of the cellar, so I'm going to stay out of the cellar. Um, but then I didn't. So I would sneak in on my days off, or on his days off, and, you know, basically like, you know, run a broom through there or, you know, restock stuff that's in cases that needed to go in bins and, you know, reprint the wine list so there are no 86s. And and uh, about a month later, he came in on his day off and he was like, yeah, I thought that was you in here. And um, he just happened to tell me about 90 days after I was there, he said, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to start an internet business. And I was like, what's the internet? Because there was no internet at the time. 
And it was a company called virtualvineyards.com. And he was going to go sell wine on the internet and they needed a sommelier for square one. So, uh, you know, within my first 90 days, I just got lucky and, you know, being in the right place at the right time and got a sommelier job. Because virtual vineyards became wine.com. Became wine.com. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny if you go back and and look at some of those early articles in um, like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times or the Chronicle talking about the internet business, they would say Amazon and virtual vineyards in the same time. They would say Bezos and Granoff in the same paragraph. He was that in front of that business. You know, unfortunately, he picked the hardest business, you know, to sell direct. But, you know, Peter was way ahead of his time when it comes to understanding what the internet would be. So what was it like at Square One for you? I mean, doing the wine. It was it was awesome. Um, I was introduced to, you know, going from Vegas to Square One. You know, Vegas, I was dealing with more national brands, more established stuff, stuff you would see pretty much all over the country. And, you know, California was just kind of emerging. Um, we would have like a, a Stony Hill Chardonnay allocation by the glass at the time when you know, no restaurants got Stony Hill. Um, you right, know, it used to just be mailing lists, right? Yeah, it was just mailing lists. And then, you know, we had enough to run by the glass. You know, I've been fortunate enough, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what are some of your greatest wine memories? And, you know, when I got to the cellar at Square One, Peter had bought a bunch of, from the early 70s, Joseph Swan, Zinfandel, and Pinot Noir. Oh, nice. I mean, stuff he had actually made, even back into the 60s. And so I, I got to try a lot of those. And so it was a much more innovative wine list. And, and I got to be a lot more creative. So instead of just doing Bordeaux, now we were doing Reds from the Loire. Now we were doing Reds from the Rhone. I remember he, he had bought a lot of uh, Genta and you know, a, you know, a lot of Henri Jaillet. And you know, there was a lot of classic stuff that no one really knew what it was and that we had in our cell and I got to try. Fun to find that out. Oh, it was awesome. And, uh, but you know, that's, that's what the wine business is. It's all about discovering new things and especially as how tastes change, you know, you get new opportunities. It's funny how you follow someone and you realize over time how good or not they were in terms of their picks. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Peter was, he was definitely, and you know, um, even at the time when I was drinking them, I didn't realize what they were. You know, I remember like the first time I drank Genta in, you know, my adult days, I was like, oh yeah, I had that at square one back, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And, and we just drank that You're all that the time. You're that guy at the tasting. You're yeah, that yeah, guy. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to be, but- uh, Oh yeah, yeah I've been yeah. drinking that forever. Exactly, yeah. Before you were born, I was, uh, you know, I had studied all those wines and-, and yeah. What era was that at square one? I mean, what- uh, So I was square one, um, uh, basically 93 to 95. Okay. And, uh, and I, was, I was happy in San Francisco. And um, then one day the phone rang and- I'll never forget this because I had actually been out the night before with a bunch of San Francisco sommeliers, Burke Owens, Larry Stone, Debbie Zacharias, and we were at Post Trio just kind of talking. And I'd said, I'd go, I kind of want to go work for that guy, Emerald, down in New Orleans. And they kind of laughed. Why did Because I, I had heard about him and and I knew the sommelier, Charlie Trotter, and Charlie Trotter and, and Emerald were, were pretty close. We're and, that was a crew. Yeah. And, and New Orleans seemed kind of cool. And, and um, so my phone rings. And this guy says, hey, it's Emeril Lagasse from New Orleans. And I didn't know that Emeril was from Boston. So I hear this guy with a back East accent. And I think it's, you know, someone from the crew the night before messing, you. messing with me. Yeah. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, you know, so I know the sommelier is over at Charlie Trotters and, and they recommended you. And he said, yeah, you know, your name has come up a couple of times. I'd like you to come down and interview. And I was kind of sarcastic because I think I'm getting messed with. And I was like, great, Emerald, just send me a plane ticket. And, you know, I'll try to get down there. And, you know, the next day a plane ticket shows up. And I, you know, I'm like, 
whoa, that that actually could have been Emeril Lagasse. So I called him and I'm like, I'm like, Chef, Chef Emeril, like, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know it was actually you. And he was like, it's okay. You and I are going to have a good time. And came down and just had this crazy, crazy interview. Like, what um, do you mean? You know, I, I arrive and he has someone pick me up at the airport and we go to dinner, 15 courses. Emeril cooks every course at Emeril's. Hang out that night, drink a bottle of wine with Emeril. He says, hey, you know, be at my house at 8 a.m. It was only about two blocks away from where I was staying. Um, this is on a Sunday morning. I get there. He's got champagne. He cooks me breakfast. And he says, all right, we're going to go tailgate for the Saints game. Go tailgate. Go to the Saints game. Luckily, they win. The whole town goes crazy because they didn't win that much back then. And it's about 5 o'clock. And, and I'm kind of tipsy. And I'm like, I should not be trashed in front of the guy that I really, really want to go work for. Because I, I could see right away how passionate he was and, and how good of a restaurateur he was. Um, so I was like, Chef, I, I, I got to go home. I'm going back to the hotel. He's like, no, you're not going anywhere. And I uh, calls over a general manager from one of the other restaurants. And he's like, don't you have plans for, for Greg tonight? He's like, yeah, we're going to Pearl Jam. And uh, Pearl Jam was playing. Um, we're third row, you know, open air stadium, go to the concert. And the next day he and I have lunch. And he's like, what do you think about working here? Uh, and I was like, yeah, like, I don't even, I don't even need to go back and get my stuff. I'll just, I'll just stay. And, uh, and, and that, that was just, you know, the start of an absolute, absolutely crazy ride. But why did he like you so much? I mean, what, what was that about? You know, I think, I think he and I connected, uh, um, on kind of a back East thing. New Orleans on face value tends to be very, very proper. And I just kind of told him my opinion and, and, and what I thought about things. And, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I think Emerald was, Emerald's the kind of guy, if you look at the people in his organization, he likes people who are passionate and, and are driven. And, you know, when I told him the story about how I went to college and, and how I got to San Francisco, I think there was something there that, you know, because his story is like that. You know, he moved from up east down to work, to, you know, for Ella Brennan uh, at Commander's Palace. And, and, you know, he didn't really have a connection to New Orleans. He just, he just did it. And when he went out and opened his business, I mean, he was the GM and chef of Commander's Palace. And he basically went to the equivalent of the Lower East Side in 1982 and opened a restaurant. I mean, it was, you know, even, even when I was there, we had security guards to make sure that when you walked out of the building, you went right as opposed to left. Because if you went left, it was going to be a bad night. What so, was it like working there? It was amazing. It was, it was a party every night. And, um, you know, what a lot of people don't realize about Emerald, because Emerald is, is really more famous for his TV show, where it was all about the, um, you know, let's make dishes that the everyday person can cook. Um, you know, I'd put Emerald up against any two or three star Michelin chef and, and, you know, go dish for dish and, and Emerald, Emerald can hang. And what he's really good at is creating things off the fly. So every night we would have four or five tables going on and we had a tasting menu, but he would never cook off of it. Like if you walked in the restaurant he'd say, Hey, Levy, you know, I want to cook for you. And you would never get the tasting menu. And if someone else was there and they had a, a separate party and they, and Emerald wanted to cook for them, they would have a totally different menu. So all night I'm opening bottles and doing all kind of different crazy pairings with all kind of different crazy foods. And, and, you know, it, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to have 20 or 30 bottles open at one time for all the pairings that were going on. So I just got to experience, um, so many different things. And, and, you know, he actually used to yell at me for not buying enough wine. He was like, you didn't buy enough wine this month. And that, that's amazing. Yeah. Why, why? Because he wanted a world-class wine cellar. He, he wanted the same kind of cellar that Charlie Trotter had. And, and, um, and he was willing to let me do whatever I wanted to do. It was, you know, if I wanted to go buy, uh, I'm trying to think of one of the, you know, I, I mean, I bought a vertical Leonetti back in the, you know, from the mid eighties. You were into Washington already. Huh? Yeah. 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 
you know, no one at the time was buying Washington wine or, or, you know, hey, you know, Emerald, let's get into, you know, old Rioja and go get some verticals of that. And so he really let me do everything that I wanted to do and, and was really supportive of it. He was, it was an amazing place to work. And I, you know, I had dinner with him every night. Really? Yeah. He had a group of closing managers and GMs that he just, every night we'd sit on the same table, six to eight of us and just kind of wind down from the night. And um, I could occasionally skip but if I made it, if I made a habit of not going to dinner, he'd be like, "Hey, aren't you at dinner?" I mean, it was like a, it was like a personal thing for him. And uh, and dinner would be anywhere from, you know, Emerald would start drinking white wine about nine o'clock. We called it the finger program, and he'd run me all over the restaurant. You know, you you could only give him an inch and a half of wine. You could never give him like a glass because he'd yell at you. He wanted it cold, or no, he just wanted to run me around the restaurant. Um, it was because it was a fun little game we used to play. So nine o'clock, first bottle, and whoever's in the cellar at nine, you know, you'd open something like, uh, you know, like Zinhumbrecht or AC Merso from Rulo or, you know, wh- whatever, uh, whatever white wine you felt like drinking that night. And then dinner, there were three levels. So there was our normal wine, which would be, you know, like a Lafarge, like, you know, five to 10 year old Lafarge Volnay, something like that. And um, every once in a while, he, 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 just, he only called me master. I don't think he actually knew my name. He'd go, he'd go, master, are you going to the cellar tonight? And that meant we were drinking bigger. So that was somewhere, you know, now we're going to drink like a, a 78 great producer Burgundy or something or, or like an 85 Bordeaux at the time. So something really cool. Had you already passed the test? Uh, I passed in 96. So I passed like right in the middle of my tenure at Emeralds. And then every once in a while you'd go, hey, do I, do I need to take the keys to the cellar? Which means we're going big. You know, we're going, you know, into the 20s in Bordeaux. We're drinking Henri Jaillet, you know, basically like anything I want to pull at any expense, we're, we're drinking. And, you know, that basically went on for five years. It was an incredible wine education. That and, sounds like also a lot of fun. Like, oh, that was, sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. You know, um, yeah, tough on the liver. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of, of developing a wine palette, I, I can't think of a better place, uh, a better place for me to, to develop my palate. You really and, liked wine or? Emerald or yeah. Emerald loved wine. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and um and he was he was a fantastic blind taster. I mean, he would you know he couldn't he he didn't know the difference between Merceau or Pliny Marche or Chasson or you know, anything like that. But you know, you gave him great white burgundy. He was like, this is good quality white burg. This is great quality white burg. This is mind blowing white burg. His sense for wine quality and taste was fantastic. Well, that's helpful for a chef, right? <laughs> yeah, you would think. Yeah, yeah. But he was also very interested in it. He wanted to learn about it and uh, taste through everything that we were doing. I mean, how many covers were you guys doing on a night? You know, when I got there, the restaurant changed because it, it went from being more of a business restaurant to more of a tourist location. Sure, with the TV show. You know, uh, it was consistently 300 every night. And, you know, I, I think there were nights where we did 650, 700. Oh, really? So oh, it was... Oh, it was rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I remember, you know, some nights during Jazz Fest on Friday, you know, there were... 220, 220 seats in the restaurant, and there were like 300 people waiting. It, you know, you learn. I learned fine dining, but I learned fine fast dining at that restaurant, which was which was great for when I went to work for Wolfgang Puck. So you must have seen him basically become like a food world celebrity over that period of time, then, because isn't that what that means? That all of a sudden the tourists start showing up. Yeah, you know, when I first got there in our first year, we went out to Vegas and opened the Fish House out at the MGM Grand, and no one really knew who he was at the time. And by the end of my five years there. We would beg Emerald not to go in the dining room. He loved going to the dining room and talking to people, but he would shut the restaurant down for an entire hour. And um, the extraditors would never catch up and no one would eat, no one would leave. And, and I, I'd actually never seen 
anything like it where the whole room just crashes and everyone stops doing what they're doing and all they want to do is get a, a piece of his time. It was, it was incredible. I, I, I had never worked in a restaurant like that. And after that, I never worked in another restaurant like that. Was he a big showman or I mean, what was he like in person? No, he was, he was, he's the kind of guy that when he talks to you, you know, you're the only person in the room. And again, he wasn't talking to you at table 32 and looking at table 50 and, and 62 and 25 at the same time. He had your intense focus, you know, and, and just his knowledge of food and wine it was, was incredible. And he really picked up the, particularly from Ella Brennan um, and Commander's Palace, which I think still to this day is some of the best hospitality in the world. He really picked up and fed off of that. So we understood hospitality too. And uh, so he, he's, he's a special guy to be around. Who are the type of diners that were really driven to go seek out Emerald? I mean, who are the who are his people? Uh, you know, like I said, it changed. At, at, in the beginning, it was high end dining, and then I can't tell you how many times people came in and said, "You know, we don't eat out in nice restaurants, and we came down here on vacation, and we saved. We've been saving for six months just to eat at this restaurant." And it was pretty mind boggling. You know, it, it was amazing to think that some people, you know, instead of going to saving to go to Paris, they were actually coming down to to Emeralds. To spend their time, you know, it, one of the um, hardest and most amazing and and saddest things I ever saw was we actually had a um, a little boy. He was about nine years old and um, watched Emerald on TV, and um, uh, he was a Make a Wish kid, and it was his dream to come spend the day with Emerald. And um, he came down and and he spent the whole day with us, and and uh, Emerald treated him like a king and had dinner. Um, and at the end of the night, Emerald gave him a, uh, a chef's jacket. And uh, unfortunately, a little boy passed away about um, three to four months later, and he was actually buried in the chef's jacket. And it was, you know, that's, you know, it's just, it was just in a, um, it was an amazing restaurant and an amazing time and, and an amazing place. And, and um, you know, I, I could tell more stories like that. I feel like that would be a hard place to say goodbye to. Like, that would be a hard place to break up with. Yeah, it, it was. It was, it was, um, I actually, the reason I left is because I knew after five years, if I didn't leave, I would never leave. And, and I still felt that I had more to do in the restaurant world. And uh, so, I, again, I wasn't really looking, but someone from my past came back, uh, Ron Mumford from Southern Wine Spirits, and called and said, hey, you know, there's a hotel here called Bellagio. It's going to open, and we need someone who understands how to buy high-end wine internationally. Because I had bought some wine in Europe and, and you know, in London and, and Germany and Belgium. And they said, you know, we've never really done that. You know, um, will you come help us with this? So um, said goodbye to Emerald, which was really hard. And, and then basically moved back to Vegas and uh, basically spent the next six, six to eight months helping them get ready for the Bellagio opening. And, uh, you know, for example, like I bought everyone when I tell when I tell people this number, everyone thinks that, that I'm exaggerating. For the opening of Bellagio, we bought 150 cases of 82 Petrus. And, uh, and within six months, every one of those cases was gone. And that's like the crazy times that were going on in Vegas that, at, at that period. So it had really shifted. It had really shifted. Yeah. Every, you know, wine was now a draw for the high roller, mostly for the high-end Baccarat player. But, you know, there are the occasional high-end craps player, the uh, occasional uh, blackjack player. But, you know, everyone, all the high rollers knew if the casino really treated you, really considered you a serious guest, one of their guests, you could get high-end wine from them. And the Holy Grail was 82 Petrus. So there were a lot of comps is what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, the comp thing in Vegas can be really tricky because 
The casino doesn't necessarily want to tell you what the player is. They don't want to tell the player what he is qualified to get. So the casino host, who is basically the person that's taking care of the player, will come into the restaurant and always be like, yeah, so let's get this guy the best bottle of wine in the house. And it's your job as a sommelier, you know what the number is. So you know that he qualifies for a $500 bottle or a $1,000 bottle or an unlimited. So you have to now talk this guy into whatever bottle he's qualified for and still make him feel like he's like the greatest thing that the casino has ever had in the casino. What was your and, approach to that? I mean, how do you even do that? Uh, you know, you have to have four or five different wine lists and, and you know, you just got to learn how to sell. And, uh, you know, th- and, and that's really where, where I felt like I learned how to sell because you could get the, you know, the one thing you do not want to do is make the casino look bad and make the casino host look bad. Because where, you know, where I'm looking at a thousand dollar bottle of wine, you know, you might have a guy who's playing a million dollars a year and losing a million dollars a year. And that's a lot bigger than the, you know, the thousand dollar bottle of wine that, that I'm worried about. You know, you just, that's where you learn the powers of persuasion. And, uh, but there were definitely some tricky nights where, you know, we, we as a restaurant might've had to, might've had to pay for a bottle that, that we wouldn't have normally paid for. What is the type of personality that spends a million dollars a year at a casino? Like who is that type of person? Well, I, I would say that most of them are not shy. I would say that they're all individuals who have been very successful in life and know exactly what they want and have little penchant for bullshit, basically. And some of them just, they, they just know some names of wine. So they may know Silver Oak or, or they may know, you know, Cayman Special Select or, the, or they may know Lafitte. But, you know, I found that uh, a lot of the high rollers, at least at that time, I, I'm sure now it's very, very, very different. But a lot of them were still getting introduced to wine. So, you know, um, instead of getting them the 85 Lafitte, you could say, hey, you know, this is an up-and-coming Napa producer, or this is an up-and-coming region in Italy. You know, do you know Brunello? Do you know this wine? So there, there, was, there was a lot of flexibility to be able to show them new things. Whereas I think, I haven't worked in Vegas in, in a long time, but I would think now it'd be a little tougher to show them new things and still make them feel like they're being taken care of. Who were you but, on the floor? I mean, what was your service? Were you a guy that talked to people for a long time or did you focus on opening bottles and getting them poured to the right level? Or Yeah, was I was never, I was always really good at hiring the schmoozers because I was more into, hey, you know, we have a 300 seat dining room. We're going to do a thousand covers tonight. I want to make sure everyone feels great, but everyone gets service. Because after I left uh, Southern Wine Spirits, which was only a short term gig to begin with, I went over to run uh, all the Wolfgang Puck's restaurants in Vegas. And at the time, he had four, and we eventually opened five. And those were, were for the most part, very high-end, convention-driven restaurants. And, you know, all the conventioneers, they all want to eat between basically seven and nine. And so, you know, you're looking at max a 90-minute deuce, you know, an hour, 45-minute, four, if you can get away with it. You couldn't always do that. So, you know, you have to make them feel special, and you have to give them the at the time, the Wolfgang Puck experience, but we were, we were doing it at such a high level. And at the time, Vegas was very cyclical. You know, there, there were months where, where it wasn't that busy. So you really had to maximize during your busy seasons. But, but Bellagio, that was Steve Wynn, right? Back in the day? Yeah, yeah. So what was it like? I mean, was he around or did you? So um, I actually had one encounter with Steve Wynn. So you remember, you remember the movie uh, Ocean's Eleven? Of course, the original or the- The original. One? Yeah. So- the Ocean's Eleven, um, where they go to talk to the casino boss's office, that's actually Steven's office. Um, the way I know is I was actually there. So at the time, Steven wasn't the biggest, and I'm saying this all from hearsay and the, the little conversation that I had. Um, he, uh, he didn't really feel that, that Bellagio needed you know, $5 million worth of wine. And 
at the time, Southern was pushing to make sure that Bellagio had the adequate inventory to make sure that their guests were taken care of when they needed to be taken care of. So they wouldn't run out of wine over a weekend and so on and so on. So that's um, funny how close that relationship was, that it was a kind of symbiotic relationship from distribution. Yeah. Well, Larry Ruvo, who's the managing partner of Southern and Steve Wynn were friends back from, I think they're teenage years, but they were, they, they were pretty close and, and, uh, and I know spent a lot of time together socially. So Larry calls me into his office one day um, with Jay James, who was the wine director of um, Bellagio. And he says, says, we need to go talk Steve Wynn into putting a lot more money into wine. Because at the time, they had only wanted to put like half a million dollars into wine. And, uh, and he said, I can't do it. You guys need to go do it. And so we had an appointment set up. And I never forget, I'm like 28 years old. And I'm walking into Steve Wynn's office to tell him that he needs to spend a million to $2 million on his wine program. And uh, so I go in and I'm sitting there and, and he's sitting behind the desk and it's just this monumental office. And, um, and he says, so I understand you gentlemen are here to tell me that I need to put $2 million into wine. And uh, we said, yes, Mr. Wynn, that's what we're here to do. And he says, why do I need that? And Jay and I just laid out a, just kind of a path of, look, this is what your high rollers are expecting. This is, this, you have to look at it as an amenity and an, and a an necessity. And, you know, in the world that we live in and how competitive the casino business is, you have to have what your casino player wants when he wants it. And it was, so he thought about it for a minute and he says, you're right. And then he goes, where are we going to put it? And uh, Jay James said, well, that's the question. So he picks up the phone and he says, get all the designers in here. And within like five minutes, there's like six designers and all the plans for the Bellagio were on the table. And within about 15 minutes, there were six locations of where to put wine cellars and how to make sure all the restaurants had access to certain cellars. And it was fascinating to watch that as soon as he made a decision, it was like, go. And, and we're going to, and we're going to get it done and we're going to get it done right. It, it was crazy. Because it was a landmark thing, right? The wine program at the Bellagio was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there had been restaurants that had done it on a smaller scale, you know, some, some individual restaurants and, and the Rio had a major wine program in kind of the, the mid to late nineties. But Steve was kind of the first person that said, wine is not going to be an afterthought. It's going to be a focus. But I think it was really Steve Wynn that helped seal the deal for high-end wine in Vegas and say, it's not an amenity, it's now a necessity. When people talk about who really scored in Vegas, usually Wolfgang Puck is the first person they say in terms of really set it out at the right time and made a, a lot of money successfully by opening restaurants at a high level there. Yeah, you know, you know, the model the model didn't exist. Wolf kind of set the model. Um, you know, he didn't do the first casino restaurant, but being at the forum shops, you know, basically adjacent to Caesars, it was a landmark deal. And and uh, you know, the restaurant was huge. It's a I think it's probably a 15,000 square foot restaurant. And, you know, we consistently do, you know, big numbers every single year. And, and right away, it became the flagship restaurant of the entire firm. And I think a lot of other restaurateurs looked at it and said, hey, you know, there's something here. And Vegas is ready for restaurants. You know, we still got to do the buffet. Um, you know, but I, I, you know, I would even make a case that Wolf changed the buffet because, you know, you would come and get Wolfgang Puck food, and then they, and then the people would go to the buffet, and they're like, "Well, the buffet's not really good." And all of a sudden, you got caviar and lobster and Dom Perignon on the buffet, and yeah, it was really a, you know, a case of one one great restaurant changes the entire neighborhood. And and I think Wolfgang, you know, really did that. And the regional spot was still open from 1992 in Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. What was that like? I mean, what was that like for you? Oh, uh, that was that was an awesome restaurant. 
I absolutely love the guys that manage that restaurant. Tom Kaplan, who's a managing partner, and David Robbins, who's the uh, executive chef, and now he's kind of like the director of operations for all the Vegas and, and units far beyond. You know, we were we were kind of removed. Wolf would come to Vegas a lot, but we were kind of removed from the day-to-day dealings of LA. And again, you know, I was in a fortunate situation where, you know, the wine scene in Vegas was kind of changing and, and Bellagio had just opened and and Tom Kaplan kind of gave me free reign to kind of do whatever I wanted to do. And, and Vegas was still kind of stuck in in the really traditional California cab, you know, Bordeaux, um, classic French region kind of places, um, kind, of, kind of lists. Um, and he kind of let me do whatever I want to do. Um, Ken Fredrickson, um, who's a master sommelier living in Chicago now, he was a sommelier before me and, and he started the process. And um, when he left to go to Jackson Hole and open his own thing, that's when I came in. And Tom let me do everything, whatever I wanted to do. And, and uh, I opened a lot of restaurants for them. And um, they kind of made me uh, an integral part of the team from day one. And pretty quickly, I became a partner in the company. What was it like as a business? I mean, it seems like so sharp to open a Vegas at that time. I mean, were they sharp dudes? Or? Yeah, they were. Yeah, Tom Kaplan's brilliant. He really understands uh, restaurant operations. I have no idea what the original Spago deal was. Um, I know it wasn't, you know, Steve Wynn really created the percentage of gross where, where, you know, if the restaurant does 10 million, you know, you get X percent off of gross and then you you only have your, your metrics. Um, Spago had to be run as a true, true business. Uh, but I'm sure that there were lease concessions that, that were amazing. But, you know, for the first 10 years, the restaurant was so busy. It was, it was just, no one could believe how, how busy that restaurant was. You know, I, I think both Tom Kaplan and, David Robbins were the right guys at the right time for Vegas. You know, if you think about what those restaurants were, um, no one had really done restaurants of that size uh, on a consistent basis. And, you know, I I think what David was really good at was creating really high-end food at super high volume. Like the Wolfgang Puck Pizza, you know, $15 on the menu and you could do one every three minutes and you could do, you know, a thousand of them in the cafe over the course of a dinner. And the diners loved it and everyone loved it. And it was something that was innovative at the time and revolutionary for the guests, but could be done very quickly in the restaurant. You know, that restaurant was all about, I think the way Tom Kaplan ran it, it was all about how do we do the highest levels of fine dining and hospitality in a massive volume setting. And, um, you know, I remember the first night I worked at that dining room, I, you know, I had never seen, I think we had 1500 covers the first night I had never seen. And that wasn't even the cafe. There was a separate cafe, which would do another, you know, thousand covers. And, uh, I, I had never seen volume like that, you know, on two levels. It was a two level restaurant too. So they were brilliant guys and, and, you know, they've created some great partnerships. Uh, you know, they, they have, a, a some restaurants with four seasons and, and, you know, I think they're really good at creating partnerships and, and making sure that both the restaurant and the partner benefit from the relationship. What was Wolfgang like as a person? What was he like? Oh, Wolf's awesome. Wolf is, he's a very serious cook, but he loves to mess around, particularly if he knows that you're good at what you do. You know, there's, there's some legendary stories, you know, they always do the Oscar party and it'll be like four o'clock in the afternoon. And the Oscar party starts at nine or nine thirty whenever it starts and, you know, 1200 people and it'll say, yeah, you know, we're scheduled to do lamb, but I want to do pork. And you just, just got to go do it. And, uh, you know, we opened um, the Borgata uh, in Atlantic City, I guess maybe 2001, 2002. And we were about six hours from opening. And Wolf was looking at one of the wine walls that we had in the restaurant. And he said, I think that would look much better with tequila. And I laughed. And he was like, no, no, that wall will look much better with tequila. And I knew I couldn't argue. I just all I, I just I had to 
I had to uh, just go get it done and somehow managed to get it done and, you know, went out and found 120 bottles of tequila and changed out the wall. And that's just, that's what he wanted. But, you know, he was, he's an amazing guy. My first, one of the first wine events I ever did was down in LA when, after starting Gramercy. And it was uh, the Los Angeles Food and Wine Experience. And this was a, a, a lesson in leadership as an entrepreneur. I said to, now my business partner, but my assistant winemaker, his name is Brandon, awesome guy, one of my best friends in the world. I said, hey, um, I'm going to do this event. I need, I need five of this wine, five of this wine, five of this wine, five of this wine. Um, so I, go, I get down there and get ready for the event. Now, this event's going to be 1,500, 2,000 people. And they bring me a box or they bring me two boxes. And uh, I'm like, that's great. Where's the rest of it? And they're like, no, that's it. And I have this like deep sinking feeling for a second. And I go, he sent me five bottles and five bottles and five bottles and five bottles. And I needed five cases, five cases, five cases, five cases. <laughs> so like right as that is happening, um, the event is starting to happen. And Wolfgang Puck's there with a TV camera. And he was like, oh, Greg, I didn't know you were going to be here. And he gets on the mic and he screams in the mic, everyone, this is the best winery in the entire place. You have to come here and taste this wine. And all of a sudden I have like 400 people trying to taste my wine. And I have like, and I, I said to my wife, I'm like, go to Spago right now in LA and go buy everything they have. And then ask them basically where else we can buy wine. And my wife just ran down to Spago and bought everything. I mean, they eventually, they just basically gave it to us. We sent them a check later. But they, but they, you know, we managed to scrape together like, you know, five or six cases of wine. And, uh, but it was, um, it was a scary few moments. So, cause if you know Wolf, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give people little half ounce pours and he's going, no, you can't do that. And he's filling entire glasses and you have to try this. You have to try this. And he was, it was, it was great. So one of these things that wasn't funny at the time, but now it's awesome to look back on. What was your life like when you were working for him? I mean, you working all the time or? Yeah. You know, but, but, but it was fun. Um, you know, I, I kind of morphed from being just wine director and I was doing a lot of the new restaurant development. So I was really involved in um, the new restaurant projects we were doing and, and, you know, things like Spago Maui or, and I'd started taking over, I never, I never ran um, uh, any of the LA restaurants, but I had taken over Spago Palo Alto. I had, a, I had every once in a while, I had some, some uh, input into Posterior up in San Francisco or some input into Spago Chicago, just kind of ancillary. But, you know, working for Wolf, it was, it was the kind of thing you could see if you were an entrepreneur, he would let you um, run with what you wanted to do. And Honestly, had no intention of leaving and then started dating someone who said that she wanted to move to New York and um, she moved to New York and then I moved 90 days later <laughs> and then the relationship lasted about another six months and, uh, and I was in New York. So now I'm in, uh, now I'm in New York working for uh, Steve Hansen, which was, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. There is nothing in the world like New York restaurant experience. You know, I, I worked for obviously Emma Lagasse and, and Wolfgang Puck and, and, you know, people, people look at my resume or they, they read my bio and they go, you worked in New York city. And I'm like, yeah, but I worked for Emma Lagasse. It was like, no, you worked in New York city. And so there's, there's, there's some intrigue and allure about if you can make it in New York city as a restaurateur, like you are the best of the best of the best. And, and I, I definitely feel that way. It is such a, an aggressive, such a crazy, amazing market. It's the best of the, of the restaurant business and the worst of the restaurant business all at the same time, all mixed into one. I mean, where else in the world do you have the amount of product available, the knowledge of wine from your guest, their demand for excellence and hospitality in usually facilities that are not designed to do what you want to do? 
you know, you're running a, a 300 item wine list out of a closet and you're supposed to do it at a world-class level, you know, and your product just got dropped, you know, three blocks away because the, the driver didn't feel like walking over to your, to your restaurant. You know, it's, it, it's a crazy place to do business, but. And you were working with Stephen Hansen. Yeah. So I, I came in to basically run all of beer guests, which I think at the time when we got here, we had eight or nine restaurants and then we built, I don't know, maybe five or six more. I think I was probably running 13 or 14 by the time I left. So that would have been kind of like when Bluefin opens that kind of Yeah. Area. So I actually, so I got, I moved to New York City December 1st, 2001. So right after 9-11, obviously a very strange time to uh, move to New York City. Um, and then we're going to open Bluefin, which is in Times Square. And Bluefin is going to open the day before New Year's Eve. And we didn't get our liquor license because we didn't have, we didn't have fire code approval until the morning of the day before New Year's Eve. And there was no such thing as a soft opening with Steve. There was no such thing as, hey, let's start with 200 items. He's like, um, whatever, he said to me, so whatever items you have on your wine list day one, that's what you will have basically a year later. So he was basically saying to me, if you want to do 1200 wines, you better have 1200 wines day one. And uh, so that was my first um, entree into running restaurants in New York City. So trying to figure out the day before New Year's Eve, how to get 1200 cases of wine into the restaurant, plus spirits. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, but I mean, we basically just kind of, we kind of organized it all by um, region and like threw it in a closet somewhere and and kind of told the waiters, hey, we're going to sell like these 10 items and it's death if you sell anything else. <laughs> of course they did. But we tried to keep it down to 10 items where we knew exactly, you know, you know where they were. But um, yeah, New York City was 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 a fantastic place to work. And, and uh, But after 9-11, it must have been an interesting time. Yeah, you know the city. The city was still recovering, and and um, our sommeliers were two of the sommeliers at Winners in the World. So to hear their perspective and kind of support, and uh, you know, I wasn't here, so I, I you know, I, I I was healing as an American and as understanding the tragedy, but I wasn't healing as a New Yorker, as as someone who went to the World Trade and actually worked in the World Trade Center at Windows in the World every single day. So, you know, to hear their, their perspective was absolutely, um, it was, it was very special and very tragic at the, at the same time, you know, for both of them, I, you know, I can't imagine how hard it was to, to open that restaurant at that time because it was, it, there, there, there was no rest for them. It was basically, you know, 90 days later that they're opening another huge restaurant. So my, so my hat's off to both of them, um, who came from windows and, and, uh, and, and were able to do that. Well, sometimes I find staying busy helps me cope, you know, yeah. at least in the short term. You don't want a lot of downtime. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, and for that opening, there certainly wasn't any downtime. And what was it like working with Steve? I mean, what was he like? Steve, Steve was awesome. You know, Steve, Steve has a reputation for being a, a hard driver uh, in the restaurant business. But what I really respected about Steve was if you were forceful enough and, and if you were firm in your opinion, you could say however you wanted in whatever way you wanted right back to him. And every once in a while, um, he always respected it. And every once in a while, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. Okay, so let's do that. And he was screaming at you two minutes before. So I, I had a lot of respect for him. And as a restaurateur, I mean, you know, in terms of the mechanics of operating a restaurant, I've never seen anyone better. Someone made a joke that, you know, he probably knew, you know, how much every click of the dishwasher at every restaurant cost. And he probably actually did. He probably knew it was, you know, a half a penny or a quarter a penny. And he probably told someone to go figure it out. But, you know, he would do things like... You know, you'd be sitting at a table, and and I, I still do this to this day. He would torture the poor, the designers who were designing the tables and the banquettes, because he'd sit at the banquette and you go, "No, this one's too high," and then they fix it by two millimeters. You're like, "No, it's too low now," 
and he'd fix it, you know, again, he'd be like, nope, this isn't right. And everything in the restaurant was so planned out, you know, music. We had, you know, there were 17 playlists for the night and we knew if we wanted to create energy in the room, you played this playlist. And if you wanted to calm the room down and get people moving out because you had a hard turn coming, you play this track list. And the lighting was the same way. You know, the managers all day long, they were bouncing between the dining room and changing lights and changing music all day long. And he had, he had hundreds of systems set up like this. And, uh, and actually in my business, there's still some of them I use uh, to this day. You know, every day, every restaurant, there was a, there was a 410 call. And um, every general manager was on the phone and we would go over how many covers we had, um, who, our, uh, who our big VIPs were in and, and so on and so on. There was a whole process to the way he ran the business. And for me, it really went from what I learned there was how to do like fortune, I'm saying this in a good way, like fortune 500 corporate structure in a restaurant company. And I, and Wolf, you know, the other operators, Emerald and Wolf were great operators, but it wasn't to this level of detail. And um, at sometimes it was really frustrating. Like I couldn't go up to Atlantic Grill and say, hey, put a margarita on the, on the menu. There was a whole process and it was paperwork and there was the POS. And, you know, if you wanted to do a new cocktail, it was a three to five day process because you had to make sure everyone got trained and then you had to test them. And so it was, um, feel, I feel there I really learned how to run a business. And, and I learned to me what was important and what wasn't important. And, and I kind of picked and choose what I thought was important. And like I said, some of those things I still use today. You know, I remember going to Fiamma and thinking, it's a really good wine list. And it's like kind of moving in past something. It wasn't the traditional Italian restaurant owner picks the wines. It was like, it felt like an Italian wine list that had a sommelier picking wines, which was a different feel. Now it's common. But at the time I was like, oh, this seems, uh, this seems special to me. I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty cool because the GM of the, of the restaurant, a guy named Paolo, he was actually from, from Piemonte. So he was really dialed in not only to um, Piemontese and, and you know, everyone in Barolo and Barbaresco, uh, he was also dialed into some major sellers. And then, you know, I had run some Italian wine before, but my number two, uh, Tim Wilson, was just an Italian wine freak. And, you know, he was the guy with, you know, the Zederich Pulque and the, you know, the Tosca and, you know, all, you know, the Grobner when no one drank those kind of wines. He was really the guy that was driving that. And, um, you know, luckily over there, um, we had Michael White and we had clientele who would actually buy those wines. So it was, uh, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time working the dining room at Fiamma. Um, I was kind of bouncing around. I spent more time at Bluefin. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it was fun, um, especially where a lot of people said that we could never change the wine programs at Be Our Guest because they were pretty uh, known for doing high volume, very available wines. Oh, is so, that true? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was, um, it was good to be able to, to kind of change the culture over there a little bit. Well, I remember yeah. Blue Water Grill, the wine list was good. Yeah, the lists were always good. But, you know, there were times, you know, in the beginning, you know, I would put something like Anjou Blanc on the list and Steve would see it or some customer would see it and be like, what's this? And Steve would be like, why'd you put that on? And I would say, well, it goes really good. Here, taste it. Whereas before it would be a lot of Sancerre, a lot of California Chardonnay, you know, great producers, but it was this narrow range and we were able to kind of expand the range and, and show people some other things that um, maybe the group hadn't done before. Seems like you started mentoring people around that time. I mean, it seems like you really started bringing some people through. I mean, how old are you at that uh, time? Uh, at that time, I'm about uh, 30, 31. You know, it seems like at that point in your life, you started saying like, oh, I want to I wanna bring some people along. No? I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and, and in a group that size, you, you need people. You know, it's just, you know, with just for management turnover, 
regardless, you, you're, you're going to need, you're going to need to develop people. And, that, and that's one of the things that because it's the restaurant business, because it's New York City and because not everyone wants to be in the restaurant business in New York City, they have other career aspirations. You really have to think about developing people a lot. But I remember I had been at Be Our Guest for maybe 60 days and there was always this young lady around, young girl. And I was like, girl, that girl's in our office all the time. And um, she never, never really speak to me, but one of the other wine directors always had her doing stuff. And he's like, oh, she's great. Her name's Laura. She's awesome. Anything I ask her to do, she always does. And then uh, she came to me one day and just like the Peter Granoff moment, she was like, hi, my name is Laura Manick and I really want to get into the wine business and be, and be a master sommelier. And uh, I said, great, meet me in the cellar on Saturday morning at 7 a.m. And, uh, and I had said this so many times before, no one ever shows up. And she showed up. Um, she's like, what do you want me to do? And, uh, and I'm like, I don't know. I didn't think you were going to show up. And, uh, so just go home and, and we'll just start working together. And, um, at Bluefin, uh, our wine director left and Laura Manick was a bartender at the time. And I, I offered Laura the job because I, I said, Hey, you know, you got a lot to learn, but there's a good number two here. And I, I think, you know, you're ready for this and you, you've kind of put your time in and you're ready. And I just, I just saw something in her. It was most just passion. And when I told Steve that I had given her the job, he flipped out. He, not, not because of Laura, but because he, he felt that, that we should really have someone with 10 years experience in that job because of how crazy the job was and, and how many covers that that restaurant did. He's like, no, you, you have to have someone with a lot more experience. I said, no, I think she can do it. And, you know, and he was like, well, you're sticking your job on that. And I said, I, I, I honestly believe she can do it. That kind of and, prefigures like what happened later, right? I mean, like now that's a normal thing to give some young kid who's passionate about it, like the wine director job. That's the normal now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but it, it didn't yeah. used to be exactly. Yeah. yeah, you had you had yeah you had to fight for young people because even the other sommelier there was was in his forties or or late forties early fifties at, at the time, which was normal. Um, which was normal. Yeah, um, yeah. Even still at thirty thirty one, I was still you know doing multi unit. I was definitely one of the youngest and in um, the country. In really. the country, yeah, yeah. And uh, there wasn't that many multi unit in New York at the time, right? No. I mean, for wine, yeah, maybe four or five of them. You're thirty two. I mean, what are you thinking the future is going to hold for you? I really didn't know. I met my wife in 2002. She was living in Boston at the time, and then we decided to. Uh, she moved down to New York, and um, it's funny how many times you've really liked Boston people. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's um, we we didn't really have a plan. We we thought we were East Coast people. Um, we had no connections to Seattle whatsoever, except Pam's sister Mary getting a, a doctorate at um, University of Washington. And we were just kind of making life in New York. Um, we managed to buy an apartment, and we were really settling down to say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna be in New York." And um, randomly in 2004, I came out to Brooklyn. I had been intrigued with Washington wine and wanted to check it out. And uh, um, someone I knew said, "Hey, I'm going to this tasting," and it was weird because it was in someone's backyard on a Sunday in Brooklyn. And Pam didn't go with me. I I went out, and I'm like, I never even been to Brooklyn. Why am I going here? That's a very odd tasting. Yeah, totally weird tasting. Yeah, it was a, a wine rep did it in her. She had a brownstone and, and a cool backyard, and it was, it was a cool. It was a cool spot for a tasting. And there were like twenty wall wall winemakers there, and, and Washington winemakers in general. And um, I met a bunch of people. And I was like, wow, these people are really cool. And the director of the um, wall wall wine line said, Hey, why don't you come out to Washington at some point? So later, um, like 90 days later, my wife and I were ready for vacation. So I said, hey, let's go to Walla Walla. I just met these people and I think this will be a good time. So went out there. They set up our trip. Total death march. It was like 
the, the trip that, that everyone wants to go on, but no one actually wants to do, you know, it's like eight to 10 wineries a day and, and then dinner and then drinks after, and you know, you're just dead by day two. And Pam was definitely not used to that kind of thing. But I, I started to get a sense of, wow, there's some vineyards here that I really like. And then second or third day, I was in a winery and I'm tasting Syrah. And it was with a guy named Norm McKibben, who's kind of like the Robert Mondavi of Walla Walla and his winemaker, Jean-Francois Pellet. And we were tasting Syrah. And I said, you know, if I was ever going to make wine, I'd want to make that. And Norm, in the Norm way, went, well, you know, if you ever if you want to make Syrah, we'll be happy to sell you fruit. And I said, well, I have no idea to make wine. And uh, Norm said, well, we'll help you with that too. I just kind of laughed. And um, Pam and I were convinced that we should go find a little piece of property, like a little 10-acre parcel, buy it, and then come back 10 years from now. And, you know, as life develops and finances change, buy a vineyard and, and, and develop a vineyard. And like two weeks later, we're sitting on the couch and I said, you know, I think we should start a winery now. And she's like, why? And I said, you know, because we're probably going to end up homeless on the street. And it's, it's easier to be homeless on the street at 40 than it is at 65. <laughs> so I think I'm saying that facetiously, obviously. Um, you know, I think that we should, um, I, I just, I think, just think the time is right. And uh, we kind of just drew up a business plan and she's like, okay, I'm in. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, I'm in. Called uh, the guys at Pepperidge, said, hey, can I, can I come work harvest? And uh, for a month in 2004. And they said, yeah, come on out. Worked harvest with them in 2004. Quit my job in 2005 and basically commuted back and forth from New York City during Harvest 2005. So lived in this really kind of rundown, beat up hotel for 90 days for Harvest of 2005. And then every two weeks would fly from New York to Walla Walla and for two days and get whatever I had to do done, topping or, you know, whatever. Made 800 cases year one and then uh, moved here in, uh, moved to Washington in August 2006. And now we split our time between Seattle and Walla Walla. You know, it's interesting you choose Washington because when I looked at your buying, you know, when you were so many, it seemed like you were pretty old world focused. I mean, you were an early Rosenthal guy. Looking at some of the lists, you know, you'd see Boxler and J.J. Prume and that kind of thing. Yep. It, Washington seems like a, a switch from that, no? Yeah, it's, it, was, it was a total switch. You know, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't really thought out. It was, it was kind of like going to Cornell. It wasn't, it wasn't really something I was thinking about. It was, it was kind of like this, or, or when I became a sommelier, it was like, hey, the challenges to become a sommelier. You know, I, I could have became an accountant, or, but sommelier was what was on my mind. And the opportunity presented itself. I liked what was going on. And what really interested me is, is when I really thought about it, I said, you know, all the vines out here are less than 20 years old. So if you can find good vines... Literally for the rest of my career, I can work with theoretically improving vineyards every single year, probably for my entire career. That's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, and and you know, and to me, that's that's actually I think one of the the greatest assets of our winery is that hopefully we can keep our partnerships and our growers are amazing that we work with, and hopefully we'll be able to keep the blocks that we have for you know the indefinite future. You know, I'd love to work with all the blocks I have. You know, when I'm 70, 75 years old. Hopefully, I won't be driving forklifts then, but uh, I would like this to, to still work with that kind of fruit. And I also saw a lot of potential. You look at look at how much is developed in Washington, and basically nothing's developed. It's, you know, Walla Walla, when I got there, it was only 1,500 acres. It's like, you know, Red Mountain's only 1,500 acres, and I guess now it's 3,000. But I, I just saw a lot of opportunity, and I love Syrah, and I saw it as a place where Obviously, never going to be able to afford to make wine in in Cote Roti or Hermitage, or, or I'm not going to inherit it. Certainly, you know there are there are obviously people who have gone and gotten themselves a couple of hectares, and but you know I thought that Seattle was something I convinced my wife moved to. I'm not sure I could get her to move to Ampuy 
or to uh, <laughs> you know to that part of of the world. But um, it was it was just really attractive to me, and the community was really attractive. I, th- I thought that you know it's really a place where people are open to talking about things, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, there are a lot of places left like that. I, I know there definitely are, uh, particularly some of uh, my friends who make wine in California. But um, I was just, I was really attracted. I was I was really attracted you know, in my restaurant career. I built a lot of restaurants. I, like I, I like starting things. I like testing the unknown. And this was this was really you know this was really an unknown. And there was kind of open space, which is kind of a nice corrective from New York, right? Yeah. It was, oh yeah. You know we you know we laugh all the time that you know we sold we sold six hundred square feet in Manhattan, and this was not like a, it's not a dormant building or you know Park Avenue. It's you know it's a, a nice little modest apartment and uh we bought 40 acres and had money left over really yeah so it's um walla walla real estate is still an amazing value and uh it's becoming less and less so but i think i see we i think we have about 10 years left of where it's still a prudent financial decision to buy vineyards i mean most most vineyard purchases are not prudent financial decisions you do it because you love wine and you know you want to have a vineyard that you own for the next 100 150 years or longer um, but I think right now you can, you know, buying a vineyard is still a prudent financial decision. Do you think you got in at the right time? Yeah, I think I was there exactly the right time. So um, I'm able to work with every vineyard I want to work with. Um, you know, you look at California, like imagine being in California and being able to work at, you know, Tokalone and and Three Palms and and Hudson. And, you know, I feel like those are the, obviously you couldn't assemble all those because some of them are privately held. But um, I feel like those are the vineyards that I'm able to work with, and and little by little, for various reasons, I, I feel like my my blocks get better and better. And you know, I, I think one of the nice things in Washington, once you get established, um, and once you get a reputation, especially for a reputation for a certain thing, every once in a while the phone rings. Like three years ago, one of the greatest vineyard managers in Washington, his name is Tom Wallace, I called, and he's like, you know, I've been tasting your wine since 2005, every single release, and he has. Um, never asked me to buy wine or, or, or buy grapes or, or anything. And he's like, you know, I never felt like I had the right thing for your program, but now I, I have a 50 year old block of Cabernet that I think would be perfect for you. And, uh, he's like, I want you to come out and taste it. And, you know, I'll, I'll arrange some samples from wineries who've made wine from this block and, 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 you know, just tell me what you think and went out there and was blown away. And, uh, you know, that's become an integral part of our, of our cab program. And so, you know, it's, it, it's still got this pioneer aspect you know, for me, one of the greatest parts about making wine in Washington is a lot of the best vineyard land comes from land that that's been farmed for generations and it was homesteaded. So someone may have a 50 acre vineyard, but they have a thousand acres that you can plant on. So we've gone to some of our favorite growers and said, Hey, you know, I want you to plant Syrah with these clones in this spacing with this trellising and give us a long-term contract on it. And we've done this with, with eight to 10 growers and uh, it's been absolutely fantastic to be able to almost have an estate vineyard, but not having to finance the estate, you know, work in partnership as opposed to, you know, having to come up with $5 million to buy a new vineyard. So, so what's planted out there? A lot of what we're based on is Cab Merlot. Interestingly, Grenache was one of the early, was one of the early plantings. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but um, Andre Chelshev is actually instrumental in the development of Washington. He, he's got some relations in Washington with Cool Cedar Creek. And uh, so he was uh, running around in Washington for a long time. And for a long time, he thought that red wines wouldn't really work. You know, he was thinking that Pinot Noir may work and and maybe, maybe, you know, um, you know, he looked, he would look at some hybrids, and but he thought it was really Riesling and, and uh, did eventually plant some Cabernet. 
so there's a lot of Cabernet. Uh, there's a lot of Merlot. Grenache was a big up and comer, up and comer for a while. Uh, but the freeze of 1984 basically killed every Grenache vine in Washington. So we've kind of got had a chance to rethink Grenache and, and put it in spots where it grows better. So was Chelichev the reason why there's so much Riesling planted in Washington State? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm speaking on, on conjecture. I, I, th- I think he is one of the drivers for Riesling. You know, our focus at Gramercy has always been on, on red wine. Yeah, um, I've never had a white wine from you. Yeah, we, 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 do a little bit, we do a little bit of rosé basically for fun, for our, like 200 cases for fun for ourselves to, to drink. And that's, um, that's grown for rosé, the typical Cinso Grenache Syrah blend. Um, we do a tiny bit of Viognier. And a tiny bit of a peak pool. So why so little white? I mean, it just doesn't interest you. Yeah, you know, we like making red wine. I haven't really found... You like squishing grapes? Is that what it is? Yeah, you know, I, I haven't... For me, you know, to make a wine, you know, I, I really... I want to look at the vineyard and say, wow, that vineyard is special. Or that vineyard has the potential to be special. And I, you know, I love white wine in Washington, but I, where it gets tricky is some of the, some of the warm summers, um, the warm days can make um, retaining acid in, in white a little bit of a challenge. And, you know, I feel like unless we're farming it ourselves, I, I really want to be in charge of that farming. So we may we may make some other white at times. Um, I think the Columbia Gorge is a really interesting area. And I think Sauvignon Blanc would do really well. Or, you know, even some of the the, the unicorn varieties, you know, Trousseau, Trousseau, Trousseau Gris could do well out there. I kind of want to plant Fiano. I think Fiano would be a fun grape to grow. A lot of experiments I want to do. Unfortunately, there's not not a lot of time. It seems like Washington State, you know, you encounter wines that are really ripe and sometimes you encounter wines that are less ripe. What's the scene look like to you? The most important thing in Washington is you have to have a focus, you know, and our focus has always been on balance. You know, I'm not the kind of guy running around saying, you know, I have to pick everything at 19, I have to pick everything at 20. And so we always try to pick on the on the less ripe side of the spectrum um, because I want wines to have lower acid. I want wines to have lower pH. I'm not that concerned that that the wine you, you know want it to have higher acid. So yeah, higher acid. Yeah, higher acid, lower pH. I'm not that concerned that that the wine is imminently drinkable the day that it's that it's released. Uh, you know, I'm really trying to. It, it bugs me when winemakers say, "Well, I'm trying to make Burgundy. I'm trying to make Rhone. It, it's impossible to do. You, you know, it just it's it's kind of a it's not a statement I like to make. Um, but I like to make wines that are, are, are reminiscent of the great wines that, that I love to drink. And, well, you've and also spent a lot of time in those regions. Yeah, and, and of course, because that's where you learn. And that's where, you know, things that may seem totally uh, inane to them that they do every single day because they've been doing it every single day for generations. A grandfather did it. And you might go, wait, why do you do that? And they go, I don't know, because that's what we always do. And we're like, I never thought of that. And so you, you, and every trip I go, I pick up on, on these little things. Um, but you know, the, the, the blessing and the curse of Washington is that, um, we have a very, very long growing season and, you know, you can pick Syrah in, if, if we don't have a freeze event, um, you can pick Syrah on September one, you can pick Syrah on November one, and you're going to get two very, very different things. And, uh, I think that, uh, as a growing region, there's some wineries who haven't, who haven't really said, Hey, this is what I want my identity to be. Uh, I think that's coming. Um, I see some of the younger, you know, assistant sommeliers, kind of like the sous chefs who are starting their first restaurant. You know, um, I see some of the younger sommeliers, I see the younger, younger, um, assistant winemakers starting their own brands and are doing wineries with more of a, a point of view. In terms of the harvest season, then is it kind of like your call to pick when you pick it or is, I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, you can pick, you can pick whenever you want. So all my growers know that, that we're probably going to be the first off 
for almost every variety we work with. We're, we're always the first to pick Syrah in all of our vineyards. And Cabernet, for the most part, we're the first to, to harvest. Every once in a while, that, that changes for, for various reasons. But, um, but it's not like you're trying to beat the rain or something. No. The only issues we ever have is frost. So, and, and it's interesting that this tends to happen on a clear night with a full moon. Basically, get a really cold night. We get a, uh, an inversion, and we have wind machines in our vineyards that will protect us to about 28 degrees. But below 27, it's really kind of crazy to watch. So you go out the vineyard in the morning, you know it's 27, and you're like, you look at the vine, you're like, yeah, we went through. And then you come back at 3 o'clock, and every single leaf has, has in one day has turned brown and is crinkling. And um, what happens is the vine basically starts shutting down. And it takes all the water out uh, of the grape, among other things. It, it destroys acidity and and the rachis is, is, you can't get all the jacks out. Like if you want to make Cabernet and have clean, you know, no stems, you can't get them all out. Um, so you really want your grapes off before a freeze event. Um, we haven't had one in the past three years, but it's something we're always thinking about. Uh, and when you're running your winery, it's something you have to think about because, you know, if, if it happens early in the season, you know, you might have nine or 10 vineyards that you haven't harvested yet. So now you got to think about, hey, how am I going to get this all in and, and what's going to happen? But, you know, the vintage like 2011 where there was where there was no freeze, um, there are people picking it until November 15th. We picked our last cabin on November 15th. And, and and even at November 15th, because we didn't start picking till October 3rd, that vintage, we still pick, we picked Cabernet somewhere around 23, 23, 5. So in a normal year, November 15th, Cabernet would be more like 30 by then. Easy. So what are the different subregions that you work with and how are they different? You know, for me, you know, there's the old cliche that Syrah likes of you. And I totally believe in that. Um, 99% of all our Syrah vineyards are, are higher altitude. So above 1300 feet and relatively steep. Uh, I have a couple of vineyards that are, that are high altitude, but flatter. But the best vineyards that we work with seem to be the, the, the higher altitude steeper vineyards. Um, for Walla Walla, I really like the Blue Mountain area. So when you come into Walla Walla, there's a, there's a horseshoe shaped, uh, range of mountains called the Blue Mountains. I think they go over 10,000 feet at, at the height, but we've planted to about 1700 feet there. I, I, I love that area. That's where my lake, that's where our Lake Colleen vineyard is, um, which is owned by or managed by, uh, Norm McKibben from Pepperbridge. Amazing vineyard, mid slope, uh, really love what goes on there. There's an area in Walla Walla called the Rocks. I like the rocks uh, for certain things, and, and I'm less enthusiastic about the rocks for other things. I love the aromatic of the rocks. It's a dead ringer for, for Cote Roti, Corna, really meaty. Um, so for me, sometimes uh, I love the aromatics of the rocks, but I'm not always so enthusiastic about the structure of the rocks. It tends to be sometimes missing acidity. Sometimes the pH can be too high, and, and I don't always have the blending components to be able to, to blend into and make a wine that, that I'm totally proud of. Probably because I, I only have one or two vineyards there. I don't have a, a large selection of vineyards that I'm working with. So we, I tend to say that that Syrah, the rock Syrah for me is more salt and pepper and kind of finds its way in, into various blends. Our premier area that I just love for Syrah is up in Yakima, about two and a half hours from the winery, pretty much where, well, it is where Syrah started in Washington State. 1983, a guy named David Lake convinced the Sour family to plant Syrah. And originally, Mike Sauer didn't think that Syrah would do well there, but uh, was but David Lake was pretty uh, obsessed that Syrah would do really well. And to me, it's become, if not the best Syrah area in Washington, definitely top two or three. 
I just love working up there. Uh, the blocks we have, I, I never thought that we would ever, there's a famous block called Chapel Block. Steep slope, about 1,700 feet. Uh, was pretty much controlled by Columbia Winery, which was David Lake. And when David Lake passed on, unfortunately in uh, 2008, the winery that acquired the winery said they didn't want the contracts for Red Bull Syrah anymore. And Mike Sauer was kind of like, really? Um, but uh, said, okay, we'll see if anyone else wants it. And called me and said, hey, you know, are you, you interested in, in taking a little bit, you know, a couple acres here? And I was like, absolutely. So it was just, it's just amazing uh, Syrah to work with. Um, we always ferment 100% stems. I'm, I'm a stem fanatic with Syrah. I think that stems really give you structure and elegance and kind of that thing that can be missing if you make wine that, that don't have the stems. From everything we do is, is pretty much 30 to 100%, and we're quickly moving from 50 to 100%. Really? Yeah. 100% stems? Yeah. So uh, our lanyap, which is made from Red Willow, is always 100%. John Lewis, which is our reserve Syrah from Lake Colleen, is always 100%. The greatest thing that I've realized about Syrah, which is kind of this wives' tale, like people say, well, you can't ferment Syrah on green stems. Um, I was sitting with Tegan from uh, Turley and Sandlands, obviously, maybe four or five years ago. He was tasting my Syrah, and he said, what stem percentage do you put in here? And I said, this was about 40%, but you know, I didn't go any higher because they were totally green. But I said, you know, but I tasted them and they tasted good. And he was like, that's it. That's exactly the trick. He says, you have to taste them. I don't care if they're green. doesn't matter if they're brown. It's nothing to do with lignification. The stems are either bitter or they're sweet. And the more sweet they are, the more stems you can use. And, you know, for the past five, six years, every time I go to the Rhone or every time I talk to Syrah producers, they say, do you use green stems or lignified stems? And, and, Everyone who tells me they taste them says they, they ferment on green stems all the time. And we find the exact same thing. Huh. You know, in the rocks, the stems are, are almost always fully lignified. And we will never go above 50% in the rocks because rocks goes, you know, Syrah can be this really cool herbal, almost green pepper thing, like what you would find in Jamais. I think Jamais is like the perfect example of, of the flavor I'm trying to describe. And if you use too many, it goes to like this really bad canned green bean thing, like asparagus, bad asparagus kind of thing. And um, unfortunately, once it goes that way, you can't really dial it back. There's always going to be remnants of that flavor. And no matter how much you blend in there, if, if you're looking for it, it always kind of sticks out. We can be pretty renegade with Syrah usage. You know, we didn't, some people, they tell me, oh, we're, you know, playing with stems and they use 6% or 8%. I'm like, well, that's not a trial. Like throw 30% in there and see what happens. So we tend to try with 50% or 75% and, and see what happens. What's the rest of your protocol for Syrah? It's changing over time. It's always small batch. Uh, so small ferments, open top, uh, always punch down on Syrah. Um, some of our ferments that it, it's almost fully submerged cap. We don't actually do fully submerged cap, but it seems it's just how thick our caps are. Most of it is submerged. Concrete in some of our ferments, we have two of the, the five-ton non-blats, which I absolutely love. I think what comes off of the non-blat in concrete is, is absolutely legendary. It's, it's, you get a slower ferment. You get a, a more aromatic ferment. The cement imparts flavor, an earthiness or a minerality. And your, your temperature is consistent. It's con and the temperature is consistent from the bottom of the ferment to the top of the ferment. I just, I just love what comes out of those. After that, there's ferments for us last maybe 20 to up to 30 days, depending on if we're doing any extended maceration or not. Into the press, always into tank, 
settle out, settle out maybe 12 to 24 hours. I'm a big fan of going um, in with fine leaves as opposed to, to gross leaves. And the reason being is I've found, and I've talked to other winemakers about this, if you go with only fine leaves, you actually don't have to rack Syrah. And when I tell people that, they don't believe me because they say, well, Syrah is super reductive. And I say, well, you know, come taste my barrels at 15 months. They're not reductive and I don't rack Syrah at all. Um, and they're even less reductive in punchin. And we try to, we're trying to ferment in as much neutral punchin as we can. But obviously you can't just go out and buy a hundred punchins because now you have hundred percent new oak on hundred punchins. So we work in as many as we can trying to keep under pretty much 8% new oak on Syrah. But it's probably also helpful that you ferment open top. I mean, besides the fact that you're punching down and it has to be open top to do that, it's probably helpful because that gets rid of some of what might have been reduction. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And you, you know, we find we have less, we have less issue when we, we ferment open top and, and we've gone to all native yeast as of 2014 and in close tank for Cabernet, cause we like close tank for Cabernet a little better. The natives can be tricky. You really got to watch them and they can go, you can get mallow starting and, and then you, then you have all kinds of, of issues going on, particularly VA. VA can spike real quickly. So wherever I can use open top, I, I like open top so much better. And the VA spikes really quickly because if the mallow is happening during the fermentation, that's probably not the same kind of mallow. Yeah, you happens. actually, without getting into a technological discussion, you basically get different sugars starting to get eaten and you get a lot of volatile acidity being developed in it. And it, it shoots very, very quickly. We had, we, we've been very fortunate with um, Native. I was expecting to lose about 10%. That, that's where I was going in thinking. And we've lost less than like 2%. But we had one tank where uh, a cab tank where Mallow started this year, and and it's impressive how fast the the VA will will go up. It'll, it'll go up overnight. Because sometimes when you taste certain native yeast wines from France, and there is a lot of VA, I'm starting to think that that has to do less with sulfur. I mean, yes, the fact that sulfur wasn't used so that the native yeast could get in there, but more with the fact that Mallow may have happened during ferment. For sure. Yeah. In the next couple of years, we're going to start actually plating our ferments. So getting a microscope and, and actually looking what's going on. But it, it's been suggested to me that that acid is really the key, that you have to keep acid basically over six. And if you keep acid over six, you have a really good shot of not having concurrent mallow and alcoholic going on. And that's, I think that's also one of the reasons why we never have an issue with Syrah because our Syrah acid is always over six. It's some of the other varieties like Cabernet where, where acid could fall a little bit to the 5.5 five range where we could see these, these concurrent mallows going on. But like I said, it, it hasn't been, I, I feel very fortunate that uh, we've been able to manage it and really be very happy with what we have in tank with Native. Do you think that Syrah from Washington State, either because of clones or place or something else, is less reductive than Syrah from somewhere else? I, I've n never really thought about it. My, my gut is no. Um, but is maybe it's not Syrah from Washington is reductive. Maybe it's the process that we go through. And because obviously every region has some things that everyone in town does. So maybe there's a set of things that, that everyone in town does. Maybe it's something in the vineyards. Maybe it's, I mean, we don't use a lot of SO2. Um, we're very low on, on SO2. Uh, I've heard SO2 can really cause a lot of reduction problems in, in Syrah. It could be something that we're all doing, or, or it could just be our Syrah, or it could just be that maybe it was something that was done 50 years ago in France, um, particularly nitrogen deficiencies that said, well, Syrah in France is very reductive, so therefore, all Syrah is very reductive, so the legend actually grew out of France. You know, I, I, I don't know. 
Um, do you mean SO2 treatments in the vineyard or do you mean SO2 both, in the winery? Yeah. Both, yeah. So the grapes um, are coming in with less treatments. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pushing to... I'm putting a mandate on my growers in the next few years to be all, all organic. I think that's our next step in Washington. You know, we, we haven't really come from that mindset, but I think that our, our viticulture is at a point now where the growers are ready to say, okay, you know, conventional farming's done. Now, if we're going to be a world-class region, we really need to move to the next step and do whatever version of organic you want to do. But, you know, whether it's organic or whether it's biodynamic or, or so on and so on. But I really think that's our next step in, in Washington. And that's what I'm looking for. We're, we're already organic in our vineyards. And I would like everyone I, I work with to make that step as well. Because occasionally when I've seen pictures of famous vineyards, it looks like there's some herbicides used. Yeah, it's still, you know, managing weeds in Washington has, has been an issue. Cover crops grow, but they only grow for part of the season. So sometimes there's a lot of sand and a lot of open space in the vineyard. So uh, getting cover crops to grow can be a challenge. And knowledge can be a challenge too. But I think that we're, we're well, I know we're at the point where we're ready to go uh, do as much organic viticulture as we can. You know, it's proven that, that you can do it in Washington. What's the difference between how you make Syrah and how you make Cab? Because that's the other big percentage of your winemaking, right? Yeah. If I could do it over, I would actually create two wineries. I would have a team for Syrah and a team for Cabernet. You know, It's like running a Japanese restaurant one day and then turning around the next day and running an Italian restaurant. Cabernet is, you're looking for something different in the vineyard. You know, A lot of winemakers say, well, I pick the grapes when they taste ready. Well, if you pick Syrah, in my opinion, when it tastes ready, you're way too late. You know, I've gone from my first vintage or two tasting Syrah when it tasted good and then realizing that's way too late and then saying, well, I'm going to pick when the seeds are brown. I realize that's way too late. And now I'm on this, when it tastes like really bad uh, Chinese sweet and sour sauce, that's when we pick. It's got this like acid twinge with a little bit of sweetness. That's when we go. And I've been really happy with those results. Cabernet is totally different. You know, Cabernet berries, I'm tasting... I'm tasting the skins. I'm not really tasting the actual berry. I, I want to know what the tannin is, and I particularly want to know what the pyrazine is. I, I'm one of these crazy, freaky winemakers that actually likes pyrazine. I don't, I don't, I'm not scared of it. I, I purposely leave a little bit in my Cabernet. Is that unusual in, uh, in Washington? Oh, it's like the, I think it's unusual everywhere now. I mean, it's like the, the evil word, you know, someone says your wine's green. It's like, well, go taste 59 Mouton. I mean, hey, that wine was green. It's, uh, it was ripe, but pyrazine was, was rampant. You know, that's why you didn't drink Bordeaux for... For 10 years because it was green and tannic and it, it took 10 years for that for that to resolve and uh so in the vineyard it's different you know for syrah you know really likes gentle treatment cabernet you know you need to beat it up a little bit it it, it, it wants to be pumped over it wants more air it's just a different mindset and like i said i would separate them if i could the press is different the the sorting table is different it's it's just different grape different grapes and what's the drinking curve? Are they different drinking curves? Or? Uh, yeah, I find uh, for me, Syrah in Washington is really five years after vintage is where it starts to open. Uh, I, you know, right now in Washington, I really like the sixes and I really like the eights, particularly my sixes. I'm, I'm really happy with. Um, Second vintage out. That's yeah, that's it was it was good. It was, it was the first time we threw stems in. We did about thirty percent. The wine seems complete to me. Cabernet seems to come out of the bottle awake earlier. So maybe I, I've drank some of our wines within two years and been, I've been happy. There used to be this, this thinking that Washington Cabernet was very tannic. I actually find the exact opposite. I'm actually looking for ways to put more tannin in our Cabernet all the time, even to the point of picking some things earlier, doing some extended maceration and maybe pulling it off when, when the tannins aren't fully resolved. 
to try to actually drive some more tannin into the wine because I, I feel sometimes the wines can be a little soft. I mean, that's what I think is the problem with Washington State is that the wines taste soft. Yeah, it's, as a general overgeneralization. I would agree. Yes, we are we are actively working on on resolving that, and I, that's something that that Brandon, my my co winemaker, and I we think about that all the time. How do we how do we get ripe grapes with higher acid and more tannin? Because the it's a different soft than Napa, you know. I guess I guess maybe with Washington State, it's more like mealy. It's a different kind of soft. Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I understand mealy, but I, but I, I it, it's definitely different than our Napa Valley Napa Valley floor fruit with lacking a little tannin is or lacking a lot of tannin is definitely different than Red Mountain fruit, which is lacking tannin. They're different perceptions for for sure. I think some of it may be pH driven because if you're picking late in Washington, your pHs are going to be a little high. So you have to be, we are, we're very uh, cognizant of where our pHs are and where they're going. And sometimes we just, we pick knowing that the wine is not fully ripe, particularly Cabernet, I'm talking Cabernet for the most part, pick that knowing that it's not fully ripe, but it's going to add to the blend. It's going to add structure and, and tannin to the blend. So did that drinking window for Syrah that you gave, did that sort of imply as well that sometimes the wine's going to shut down? Or? Yeah. So I find with Syrah, particularly ours, uh, there may be, when we first released, there may be about a six-month drinking window where, where I'm pretty happy with them. They're pretty fruit-driven and pretty driven. Then they tend to shut down for three years, maybe three to four years. Five years, that's really where they start to shine. The oldest Syrah I've ever had in Washington was, I had 88 from Red Willow. Totally different than what I find making Red Willow from 2010 to 2015. The wines seem to kind of develop an angularity. So acid goes up, tannin goes up. When that fruit drops out, it becomes a totally different thing. Much more old world style than uh, what you would expect from, from New World wine. So you got to be pretty happy about that now that you've been doing it for 10 years and you can look back and see some of that. Yeah, it's been. I, I'm really happy with with what we did in the early, you know, 2005, 2006. Basically, knowing nothing about winemaking, having a head full of knowledge about the wine in the world, but not knowing a single thing about making it. So, what are other vintages that you've been happy with over the run? Seven is a vintage that I, I think is going to be legendary as we go down the line. The sevens right now are very close, so I haven't been able to actually evaluate it uh, within probably three or four years. They they're just kind of they're a little monolithic now. Hopefully. I expect them to change. They, they 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 taste like the fives. The 2005 was a great vintage in Washington. They they kind of taste. They they remind me of the fives, but they're taking longer to open up than the fives did. Um, I think when we look back 20 years from now, we'll say that 2010 is the best vintage we ever did. Uh, 2010 for me was absolutely perfect. It's generally hated in Washington. It had the perfect for me the perfect growing season. It was the first vintage we worked with where. I was much happier with the flavors as opposed, and I wasn't worried about the declining acids or increasing pH. We actually got flavor before structural ripeness, which is something that never happens. Usually we're always trying to hold back the bricks, waiting for flavor or waiting for what we're looking for in the grapes. And in that vintage, we it was very old world in that way. 11 was the same, but I don't think 11 has the density that 2010 has. Uh, I think 2012 for Cabernet, 50 years from now, we'll say, wow, that was a great Cabernet vintage. I'm blown away with uh, the quality of the cabin in 2012. Maybe not so for, for Syrah. I think Syrah is good, but I don't think it has the longevity that Cabernet will have. And you do some work with Mouvedre. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I love Morved. I think it's an absolutely fantastic grape for Washington. And the reason I really like Morved in Washington is, is if you put it in a warm place, 20 years ago, people thought that, 20, 15 years ago, people thought that the rocks would be a good place for Morved. It's just flat out too cold. And if you think of where Bandol is, I mean, it's within two miles of the ocean, the Mediterranean. It, it's, it's warm there. So now some people like Leif Olsen, who is near Red Mountain, he's not in Red Mountain, but he's near Red Mountain, and Alder Ridge, they have planted Morved there in a very, very, in very warm spots, but we also have the cool nights. But what I love about Morved in Washington is we don't have any rot issue. And Morved is a super dense, a lot of the clusters, like when you go to France and see Morved clusters, they can have a lot of rot in between all the, the little dense berries, particularly if, if you crack the the Morved open, you would see that, that there's a lot of rot in there. And we haven't had any of that issue. We had a tiny, tiny bit in 2011, but it was super easy to pick around it. So you can let the, and Morved seems, it seems to sit somewhere 22 and a half bricks, 23 bricks and just stop. I have no idea why. We've never had this issue of Morved coming in at 25 bricks, 26 bricks. So it's nice. You can get all your Syrah in, all your Cabernet in, all your Merlot in, and then we go, oh wait, we still got that Morved out there. Let's go, let's go harvest that. And it's perfectly phenolically ripe and still about 23 bricks. I think for me, Morved needs to be a little riper than Syrah. I think that it can be really, really angular and really mean if it's if it's picked a little too early. That being said, I still like putting 100% whole cluster on it, but I like it a little bit um, riper, which I know you know 100% whole cluster on Morved is kind of unheard of in in Bandol, but it seems to work in in Washington. But I think that's a a variety in Washington that's really going to excel. You know, I don't think I don't think anyone's going to get rich on Morved in Washington, but I think people are going to change their minds about about what's possible there. Are there a lot of plantings of it? No, there? that's that's a big problem. Is some of the things that keep me up awake at night. Um, it's usually not that I'm going to lose one of my best Syrah parcels. It's it's I'm going to lose one of my best Morved parcels. Mo- most more so because I have a lot more Syrah parcels than I have Morved parcels. I only have two Morved parcels, and one of them is is what I think is just some of the best Morved grown in the world. Do you see a lot of winemakers in Washington or even from the states who? are regularly using old world examples in their conversation. I mean, it strikes me talking to you that it's a little unusual how much you refer to the old world when you talk about your own protocol in the new world. I think it's becoming more common, but I, I think it's something that, a lot, that winemakers should do. You know, how, do you, how do you make wine if you don't know what the classics are? I, you know, I guess you can play. I guess you can play music without knowing classics. But uh, to truly be a great musician, I think you have to understand different styles of music. And and for me, I just feel that that if I want to make truly great Syrah, I I need to go and understand the the place that I love, which is the Rhone Valley. And and I really want to understand the mindset and the culture because that that's so much more about making wine. Making wine is not just growing grapes and putting it in a in a bin and letting it ferment. It's there's a culture. There's a mindset. So I'm looking to understand that. I think that knowing the world's wines gives you a palette of paint to start painting with, but you can't just follow their techniques. If you just try to follow their techniques, it's going to be disastrous. And I, I would like to see more winemakers in Washington not only understand what's going on, but drink more wine from France. You know, they, you know, you know, obviously people know the Jamais of the world and the Shabs of the world and Chapoudiers of the world, but you know, let's investigate some of the others. You know, Benetier. Hervé Suhar, Bernard Levey, you know, some of the ones that, that maybe the New York sommeliers know, but you don't, you, we wouldn't necessarily, uh, the typical winemaker wouldn't know. And do you see connections or 
were there times that the restaurant training really helped you out with the winery? I mean, is there some overlap? Yeah, I think I think a winery is just a restaurant in slow motion. It's when you really think about it, you're really doing the same thing. You know, most chefs aren't out growing their own produce. Some of them are. You, know, you look at the Blue Hill, the Blue Hill Brothers, and they are out, and other people are, are out doing that. But your winemaker is your is your chef to cuisine executive chef, and your tasting room and mailing list, and and you know, on premise distribution is is kind of your front of the house. And if you understand restaurant hospitality. The wine business is, is not that big of a um, of a one off. Like a lot of people say, oh, you know, how did you how could you possibly run a winery? I said, well, kind of did it. It's kind of it's kind of the same business. So I, I think that that if you understand the mindset of restaurants at at a high level and the hospitality that's required to run a restaurant at that level, it's not a big step to to make wine and, and, and grow wine. But is that true, especially when you're not just working with growers on one side? And you have to have good relations with them, but you're also trying to do private direct to consumer sales as a winery. Yeah, it's it's you know, a winery it's really an MBA in a box. If you really want to understand the world of business, everything from su- supply chain to production, you know, don't go to Harvard, go start a winery. You you will really understand and cash flow management is, is obviously a nightmare, you know, even for the most established wineries, it, it's hard. It it's it's a challenging business. But I think that the skills that I learned and also, you know, a lot of winemakers say to me well, my son is going to Davis, and and what should they do when they get out? Obviously, they should they should do six or seven vintages all around the world in the best places that they can get into. But I always tell people, go work in a retail store for for two years, and they say, well, why not a restaurant? And I say because in a restaurant you'll be a server, you'll taste wine at lineup, and and maybe you know you'll get to taste I don't know, let's say five hundred wines over the course of of a year. You go work in a retail store, you're, there's a good chance you're probably going to be t- you'll probably be able to taste ten times the amount of wine in a, a much quicker time. So I always tell people, you know, you need to develop your palate and, and working in retail is one of the quickest ways to develop your palate. Does it seem like the scale of your winery is a little different than some of the other scale of wineries in Washington state? I mean, it seems like uh, you're not quite as big as some, but you're not quite as small as some. Yeah. I think we're kind of, we're kind of right in the middle. Um, there's still, it's relatively easy to make 3000 cases, make a great living and sell most of your wine in the Pacific Northwest, and and a lot of a lot of wineries are, are doing that. A lot of great wineries are are doing that. And I kind of said, you know, I'm kind of in an, in a unique place because I know so many sommeliers, and and I love to travel. Um, my wife is okay when I travel. She uh, she doesn't get all upset when I when I'm away for a week. Uh, and and it, it's it's great to kind of go out and and spread the gospel of of what's going on in Washington. So. You know, while a lot of wineries are twenty thousand or forty thousand cases or more, we're we're around about eight thousand cases, and and for us, it, it's kind of manageable. We we crush about two hundred tons. It seems really easy. I feel like I can give every vineyard all the attention that it needs, and also give every tank all the attention it needs, and really do it at a high level. So for us, the production works uh, with Brandon and I. And it's not too much wine to sell, but there are definitely times when you have to say, oh, you know, I got 100 cases. I got to go figure out where I'm going to sell that. So what's the future for you? I mean, besides the fact that the vines are going to get older and you still have a number of vintages in your working life, presumably, what do you see happening in the future? I'm just trying to get a little better every day. I, I, I feel I feel we've established the playbook. So, you know, we know we know we're going to be a running offense. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to be a pass offense. So. I know what we want to do now. Every day, it's refining, refining viticulture, getting better in the vineyards, learning about the vineyards, dividing up our blocks, and saying this block does this, this block does that. We like that, and just trying to make better wine every day and send it to as many places as possible. You know, right now we're about twenty percent 
uh, export and my goal is to be 40% export in the next five years. I, I think there's opportunities there, particularly with some of the bigger companies that are, that are opening markets like Europe and Germany and Hong Kong and China. Uh, and, and we've been able to kind of uh, ride right behind them and show some of the, the, the sommeliers and some of the wine bars what we're doing as well. Did you have some kind of exposure to those different markets through the court? You know, you were chairman of the court of Master Sommeliers Americas for a while. Yeah, it was. I was. I was really fortunate to lead the court when I did. It's it's an amazing organization to lead, and for the first twenty years, uh, the the people that started, guys like Fred Dame and Nunzio Alioto, Evan Goldstein, they were really establishing it in America, and the UK chapter was really establishing it in the UK. And when I became chair, um, not only did we kind of reevaluate the exam and say, how do we give a better exam and how do we manage the amount of people that want to take the exam? We said, how do we make this a global certification? So for the three years that I was chair, I had a fantastic board and a board that was willing to make decisions and, and was really willing to get things done. So we said, let's look at other markets. Let's look at South America. Let's look at Hong Kong. Let's look at Australia. And luckily, uh, we've learned from experience that that's in some of those markets you don't want to move too quickly, but you want to start the you want to get the ball rolling and start to understand what it takes to be successful in that market. What did you find out? Um, you you know you really just have to basically go there and start to understand the culture. So for example, in China, bringing the intro to China, you would think, you know, the intro is is it's a relatively straightforward exam. We give the the candidates most of the information they need to know with a little bit of study and preparation experience. It's not as difficult an exam to pass as the advanced or, or the master's. So in China, what we were seeing was we had a lot of people that said they wanted to go to the exam, but would never come. And then we realized that it was very culturally embarrassing for, for someone in China to fail an exam publicly. So there was a lot of hesitation, a lot of resistance. And they were saying, well, we want to know what the questions are before we're willing to take the exam. So we had to work on that and coach them through it and say, look, everything you need, you have the, you're smart enough to pass. You have the drive to pass. You just have to trust us that you'll get through. And it took, it took a number of years to, to be able to convince that market that we weren't out to, weren't out to get them or, or embarrass them publicly. So, you, you know, you run into little things like that. Did you see a difference in how sommeliers are perceived in different countries? Absolutely. You know, we think, you know, sommelier, sommelier in the United States right now is, is going through this amazing kind of, you know, Cinderella period where sommeliers are rock stars and, you know, how many TV shows and, and movies have, have been made in the past couple of years. It, it, it's incredible what's going on. There are cultures where, you know, people will will, uh, will kind of look down on sommeliers and we've, we've run into that in... Uh, oh, like their servants. Like basically, yeah. yeah, and the family will say no. That you know, serving as a sommelier is, is beneath you. You know that they, you, you see that in some Latin American cultures. You even see that in some some Asian cultures. And and uh, so the family will actually say no, you can't do that. And some people will actually have to move away. You know, to places like London or, or Hong Kong or Dubai, which is you know obviously developing a good uh, sommelier scene, to be able to pursue the the job that they want to pursue. When you look back, and you have a lot of contact with sommeliers today through the court and then through selling to them and distribution, when you look back, how has the restaurant wine list in America really changed over that period of time from when you first started to now? I mean, how are wine programs different? Oh, it's totally different. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of a testament to how amazing the American wine culture has become and how open the average wine drinker is. I mean, no, nowhere more so than New York City. But even the Midwest and Texas and Canada, 
you know, when I first started writing wine lists, it was there was pretty much a basic formula. You know, you, sixty to seventy percent of your list was California. You had some wine from France. You had some wine from Italy. You maybe had some wine from Spain. Obviously, I'm talking about more of an American restaurant as opposed to an Italian restaurant where you have all Italian labels. Your wine by the glasses were very dialed in. You know, you'd have a Pinot Grigio, a, a Chardonnay, a Merlot, a Cabernet. You know, never run Pinot Noir by the glass or anything like that. So there was a structure. So so you were kind of looking. You were saying. How do I find the cool producers that people don't know about in this structure? And we've gone totally away from that to it's basically like, what do I want to do? And you know, do do I want to do I want to do an entire Gruner Veltliner and Chinon wine list? You could do it now, you know. And I always say, I say now to sommeliers, if you can train your staff effectively, you can do whatever you want to do. And you know, the, the, the wine lists that are going on now are just never in a million years what I thought. You would see wine lists like that with, but does that also mean that there's kind of no safety net and people can kind of get lost and and kind of in between their ambition and where the market is? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think I think the key is, uh, I'll give you one quick quick example. So, you know, people say, well, I don't want to I don't want to have Cabernet on my list. Whenever for Steve Hansen, he had this great rule. So if there was a dish on the menu that was a top five dish, he would say you can take the menu off the dish if you could kick it out of the top five. So the chopped salad at Be Our Guest is this classic salad. Been in thousands of restaurants. It's in Greek diners all over the place. Just a typical chopped salad. In that restaurant group, in seven out of 10 places, if there was a chopped salad, it would always be in the top five and the chefs could never kick it off. So what I'm saying is there are things, I think there are are some programs where they try to be too ambitious and you end up intimidating the diner. And it's not really intimidating. Are, Are you taking some joy away by making a list that's, too weird, too progressive, and are we are we creating a wine list because it looks cool for our friends and it looks cool on Instagram? We put it on Instagram as opposed to saying how are we giving the best hospitality possible. You know, I, I am by no means saying every wine list has to be fifty percent Washington, California, but I think that as you look at your wine list, you have to say what are the things that are going to make the person that just flew in from wherever that doesn't live in New York City doesn't dine here comfortable, and is, and is it at the right price point? And I, I think that's. I love what's going on in in the wine scene right now. That that is my only. If I have a criticism, that's my only criticism. So the wine culture, you've seen it in a few different countries, and you've seen it in different, really kind of key periods and areas of America. What's going to happen with it in the next ten, twenty years? I mean, where's wine culture going? I can't even imagine. Look at look at just what's going on in the United States. I was I was looking at Instagram. You know, one of one of the posters who post all the time. And all of a sudden, they're posting wine from Virginia and wine from Michigan and wine from Indiana. I think that I think they're going to get there are going to be regions that are successful. I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation. I think there's going to be regions that are less successful. I think that around the world, people are going to get better. But I think that one thing that scares me is that it's becoming so difficult to start a winery and distribute that product that I think two things are happening. You either need to be a very, 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 very large winery or a very, very, very small winery. And the medium-sized people, I think, are going to start to get squeezed out. So it's either basically like go big or be small and do everything yourself. And I think in some cultures, like particularly the French culture and the Italian culture, you know, that, that's a mindset. They look at wineries very different. They look at, we're not going to take hundreds of thousands of dollars out of this business and buy Ferraris and big houses. We're going to live in the simple family home and we're going to invest all the money in the vineyard so that it lasts for multi-generations. I really hope that that continues. I hope that future generations continue that. Uh, I know in America, that mindset is very, very difficult. So I think that in, we're going to see 
bigger companies continue to get bigger and we're going to see some of the middle players fall out and we're going to see a lot more of the smaller players. And, and it's going to be the question, are the smaller players, do they have the knowledge and experience to be able to get those wines into the market? And I think that, so that's hopefully the world continues and we just get more people drinking wine, so more demand for wine and then more demand for great producers and big producers and everything builds. That, that's what I would love to see. I, I, hope, I hope that it goes that way. You know, this even in 20 years since I started this, you know, starting in 1992, you know, you know, the knowledge and acceptance of wine is is light years ahead of where I thought it would be. Greg Harrington is trying to get a little bit better every day. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Greg Harrington of Gramercy Cellars in Washington State. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.